Welcome to episode 38 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And it's been a musical weekend, Mike. It, it is. It's it's actually a musical long weekend. Um, uh, tomorrow, Monday, well, Monday, let's say November 22nd, is the Feast of St. Cecilia. That's the uh, patron saint of music in the Catholic Church. She has uh, had that position since the 15th century. And uh, so I've been uh, spending the weekend just listening to all these uh, works that were written in her honor. And I'd oh. like to rec- recommend, I'm going to recommend three of them to listeners. There's a hymn for St. Cecilia by uh, Herbert Howells, British composer, a work that I really love. It's very short. It's three minutes long. Really beautiful. Gorgeous poem by Ursula Vaughn Williams. That's the composer, Ray Vaughn Williams' wife. And uh, that's worth hearing. There's also, um, if you're into something longer... The, the two big works about St. Cecilia, one is by uh, Henry Purcell, or Purcell, do we say these days, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Hail, he, he did a few works to her, but the biggest one is Hail Bright Cecilia. And that's a really charming work. It's about 50 minutes long. It's got one of the silliest texts ever set to music, <laughs> so it's <laughs> enjoyable that way. Pur- Purcell really did suffer from bad texts, I think, but he had great music on it, so these texts are now immortal uh, because of him. And if you're interested in St. Cecilia's um, martyrdom to know how it all happens, you can hear uh, Arvo Pert's um, very moving work. Um, it's called uh, Cecilia Vergine Romana. It's in Italian and uh, really beautiful. Um, tells tells her story. It's pretty... Uh, the, the, the story is pretty off-putting. I mean, she she was she was killed. She gets killed in it. You know, mm-hmm. then, but then she's constantly... You know, she's... Um, becomes a saint after that so then those kind of stories aren't really terribly fashionable these days but i still like them because i grew up in that in the catholic church and people came to a bloody end in the early days so they like to celebrate that i think and you rounded it out by coming to hear some sinful music last night at my gigs i did yeah i heard uh was that sinful Wow. You, you sang "Down by the River." I shot my baby. I think that's uh, yeah, that's not such a good thing to do. I never did that. I just want to make that part of the record. So yeah, musical weekend. That's good. Musical weekend. It's going to continue going. into tomorrow, November twenty second, Saint Cecilia's Day. Everybody, uh, make sure you drink a toast to your your favorite patron saint because we all love music here. Indeed, we do. Yeah. And uh, interestingly, looking at uh, the listener stats, our listeners in France have jumped way up. Must be really? all those French me baby episodes we had. You there. think they like that? I don't French, know if they liked it or not. French is a verb. Okay, yeah. got their interest <laughs> though. Anyway, we haven't got any hate mail yet. So, although maybe it was the uh, Eric Tanguy record, maybe it was his too. pals that were listening because we did that last week. Yeah, they that's wanted to hear true. what we we're going to say about it. No one reached out to us though, so I don't know no. what they um, what they thought of all that. We were trying to make out what it was about. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it was a hard record. It kind of, um, I liked it though. I mean, I, I'll, I'll certainly listen to it again a few more times. Take a few listens on that one, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a little hard to talk about after only a week. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You got to, that work like that's got to be absorbed over time. Well, All right, before, well this week, yeah, it's just, we, uh, yeah. Before we what get into uh, this week's, uh, Interesting combination of yeah. Uh, this uh, this episode was really uh, quite the uh, the amusement park ride, wasn't it? That's right. It's a real fun house of music. Yeah. Um, before we get into that, though, uh, well, fun house would be a, maybe as a fun house of music might be a good uh, title. 
Could be a good title. You should write that down. Make Let's sure keep you, that in mind. Yeah, yeah keep that in mind too. We got to think of a title for the episode. Yeah. Yeah, um, before we, we get into this one, the rides and uh, the shoots and ladders the episode. Uh, just want to remind the listeners that in our episode description, you'll find links to all the recordings we're going to talk about uh, on Spotify and Apple Music, so you can check them out. And also at the top of the description, uh, you can get all the music in one place. That's the full episode playlist on Deezer. And you can also follow us as a podcast on Deezer along with the playlist. Our username there is Adult Music Podcast. And if you can't see the description or the links on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on, uh, pop over to Podbean, our host, and all the links and everything is clearly laid out there. If you enjoy the podcast, or if you don't enjoy it, you can let us know too. Uh, <laughs> but do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to. And uh, take a minute, give us a ranking, write a review. That'll help us get listed in the browsing category recommendations. And that helps us grow our audience. If you'd like to contact us directly, any comments, questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Yeah. You can hate on us if you like. We'll just send love back. Yeah, we'll just keep. We'll we'll, we'll just go up to nine recordings a week. <laughs> you can listen longer. Yeah. <laughs> Philip Glass, by the way, once told this story about how some guy was like yelling up at him, like from the audience, like that he hated his music or all that stuff, and yet he was there. He had bought a ticket. And uh, Phil Glass kind of, in his uh, kind of Buddhist way, told the story about how uh, he said, well, I, I didn't feel like I could talk back to him or say anything nasty because he had bought the ticket and this was his way of enjoying himself. So, I guess, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he just let him be, I guess. I suppose on YouTube or something, there's probably, you know, like outrage watchers, people who watch things to uh, get angry. But I don't think anyone oh, yeah. would listen to uh, two hours of a podcast just to be you Especially know, one annoying. without a video. Yeah, where they can't see how handsome <laughs> yeah. we are, really. So. Yeah, I know. Yeah, because th yeah. then they'd all really hate on us because yeah. they'd say, oh, we just have, don't have a chance with the against these guys, you know, <laughs> of getting into a Hollywood movie. I mean, it's right. just impossible. We don't want them to see your CD collection. They, they, they really have music envy, so. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> all yeah. right, where do we uh, begin the... Uh, We've got our tickets to the amusement park. Where do we get on yeah. today? Well, our first and only normal <laughs> recording this week. By <laughs> normal, what I mean is pretty, it's straightforward. The other two, uh, of the three classical recordings I've got this week, the other two are a little uh, out there. And I didn't really expect that, although I really should have in, in the case of the second one, the Soul and Pat one. But we'll get to that when we get to it. Uh, the first one, I always start with Baroque. We like to go in sort of um, uh, the order of composition or when this music was originally made. That's really why the jazz recordings come last because they're all, they're all new. <laughs> you know, that's all new music. You know, so uh, these, we were going for the old, even though they're new recordings. All right, so the first recording is on the Signum Classics label, London-based Signum Classics label. It's called uh, Behind Closed Doors, Giuseppe Antonio Brescianello, Volume 1, Opus 1, Libro Primo, okay? And it, it has an overture suite on it, too. Okay, so this is a Volume 1. Apparently, there are going to be two volumes of this um, project because um, Brescianello... Um, he published uh, only 
his opus one. That's the only thing he published in his life. He wrote other works that I guess he'd never published. And we're hearing half of that on this recording. There were uh, six works in the opus one, and we hear three of them here. And there's also an overture suite that's a little longer. Okay. Um, by the way, the album is called Behind Closed Doors, and that really doesn't have any Baroque reference at all. Uh, the the uh, ensemble, who is the ensemble here? Did I write this down? La Serenissima. Uh, conducted by Adrian Chandler, who also plays the violin, solo violin parts. Um, we heard from them earlier this year with the fantastic Settecento um, album of various Italian composers, uh, which will be on my end-of-year list. I really liked that a lot and still listen to it quite often. Um, this uh, ensemble is British, and they have an Italian name, and they play Italian music, so they specialize in that. So it's kind of an interesting... Uh, situation they're in there but they named this album behind closed doors um because of the lockdown conditions they were in when they recorded it um and they all their concerts were canceled and the uh the booklet note kind of goes into uh you know how distressing last year was and they i didn't really need to be maybe it'll be worthwhile reading 10 20 years from now to remember but uh, i really need to have this explained to me having gone through it myself although here in japan we weren't really um treated terribly badly unless we left or came back yeah if we were here it was it was actually pretty okay the worst, we didn't get locked down yeah the worst was we couldn't drink booze outside yeah for a while that's not a big yeah, problem not though. too bad yeah it was well, kind of behind yeah. closed doors is a good adult music like title though i guess it is right yeah yeah but they were all uh, that old locked Charlie in. They're Rich. locked down. They're not getting. Uh, they're not uh, hmm. as uh, Count Basie would have it, making whoopee. You know, kind of. Yeah. I guess you <laughs> I know, know. Depends on which door it is that's locked. If it's you know the rubber yeah. room, it's not too good, right? Yeah, or why the door is locked too. <laughs> you know, you don't want the kids yeah. coming in. Yeah, you don't want to give them adva an advanced education, do you? All right. Anyway, the composer here is all. This um, unknown to me until now, composer Giuseppe Antonio Bresciano, uh, Baroque era composer. Um, that sounds like something was, on a menu, you know. I'll yeah. have the Bresciano. You know? Yeah, well, me a too. lot of Italian names I'd do. Have that too, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Brescia, by the way, is it, it is a location actually. It's, a, it's, a, it's I think it's a city name, but um, he was born in Bologna oh, long ago. I have some of that too. Yeah, Bologna. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I haven't had any of that for a long time, in fact. Okay, and uh, he worked as a valet in Venice uh, for Therese Cunegunda Sobieska, who was a music-loving, exiled electress of Bavaria. Um, Bavaria being modern-day Germany, southern Germany, right? She returned to Bavaria after the War of the Spanish Succession with Brescianello in tow, and he later uh, acquired the post of the director of music at the Württemberg court in Stuttgart in 1716. And then he became Oberkapellmeister in 1721. All right. And he lost his post between 1737 and 1744. The booklet doesn't explain why, um, but he remained nearby in Ludwigsburg until his death in 1758. So he died after Bach. Okay. The, um, that means the uh, whole um, gallant style was in full flow when he died. And the classical style hadn't really emerged yet, although it was with Haydn. But he was hidden away in the Esterhazy estate, and no one really knew about it yet until he got out of there. 
Okay, anyway, so we're hearing half of uh, his Opus 1 here. The other half will be on a future CD. And this is well worth hearing. It's... um. It's. It reminded me a lot of Vivaldi, to be honest. Yes. Um. I and I think he's heavily influenced by Vivaldi, who was older than him. Vivaldi's um right. music was all published. The really popular ones, like the Four Seasons, were all published in the, the seventeen, between the years seven in the aughts, let's say the seventeen oos and the seventeen tens. Yeah. And his music, um, Brescianello's, is is uh, published a bit later than that. It looks like. Uh, yeah, I guess the seventeen. 10, 1720s. Um, so he definitely had his ear on Vivaldi. Vivaldi, yeah. Vivaldi came up with that new style, the fast, slow, fast concerto, and we're hearing yeah. that here. And the violin parts sound really Vivaldi-esque, you know. That, yeah. That so if you like Vivaldi, and, yeah. and uh, you want to hear some melodies that really aren't Vivaldian, <laughs> I guess, um, you can you can listen to this. Um, the thing I'd say about this is Vivaldi's music is really bright, and it's really kind of... What's the say? It has a lot of spring to the rhythm, like it really just kind of bounces out of the instrument, sort of this this sound. That is not the case with um, Brescianello, who seems a little more mellow. Although that that could just be the way the Chandler plays it. He he is the soloist here. Okay, um, let's go through this really fast. Like they they're, they're pretty. Ge- they're, I don't want to say generic because it makes it sound boring, but they're not boring. They're just kind of. You know, there's no real surprises here as far as like what we expect. It's just really nice uh, Baroque music mm. um, and very Vivaldian. Uh, the uh, concerto number one for violin and strings and continuo in F major has this uh, chirpy opening um, and Vivaldi-esque melodies. Um, I like the way um, the ha- the melodies are handed off to various instruments, like they kind of trade them between each other. Always an exciting sound when an ensemble can do that well. Even though, like professional ensembles, this is easy for them now, but um, it's still exciting. I really love it. Uh, there's an adagio, also Vivaldi-esque, and it has these sawing quarter notes, like dun, 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 like you hear in the uh, summer part of the the beginning of the um, the Four Seasons. Uh, actually, maybe it's the winter part. With that, I'm thinking of okay, the frozen part. And and if it goes, uh, it ends inconclusively, and then we have a third movement, Allegro Assai, catchy. Catchy is a good word for him. His third movements tend to be very dancey, like kind of uh, country dances. Okay, now after that, we get a uh, sinfonia. So the, this program goes uh, concerto, sinfonia, concerto, sinfonia. And they're going in the order of publication. So this is Sinfonia 1 for strings and continuo in D major. Um, these are on two tracks on the uh, album, but they're actually three movement works. It's just that the adagio is attached. The middle adagio movement is attached to the allegro on the first track. Um, This particular, in this particular work, the adagio really isn't much of an adagio. It's kind of, it's kind of mid speed. And then it goes into this watery Baroque dance theme, like kind of a rocking presto rocking in the sense of you're in a boat and the boat is kind of lifting up and down on the waves, not like rock and roll. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right, concerto number two. Again, we have this chugging opening theme. Um, again, something we've heard in Vivaldi too. It was pretty common in Italy at the time, apparently. So I got a little bit of an education here. Um, the adagio, middle movement, is almost a Handelian or Purcellian, which is kind of interesting because they came much later. Um, actually, that's, actually, maybe they didn't. No, they were they were actually in the game by this time too. And Handel was in Italy as well, so Brescianello may have heard some of 
um, Handel's music. He was in Italy before he went to uh, England, where he spent the rest of his life. And Purcell was, I think, always in England. Uh, there's a lilting accompaniment pattern supporting the violin melody, very pretty. And the Allegro has good energy, and it's really beautifully judged. By the way, I should mention, this is a beautiful recording. It's just really upfront. Uh, everything is audible. It's... um. You can actually listen to this, like, say, if you're driving a car, too, because um, Baroque music doesn't really have any quiet, you know, kind of parts that are just going to, the road noise is going to make it disappear. Uh, it's good driving music. It's also good for the morning. I always like this music in the early yeah. morning. Okay, then we get Symphonia number two, and that's the, uh, this is the, uh, okay, the second one. We have Allegro Adagio, first uh, and second movement attached. Uh, there's a very brief adagio. It's probably why it gets the same um, track. And it has that same kind of dun, dun sawing pattern that we heard earlier. Um, there's a rocking kind of boat-like, you know, boat on the uh, lake kind of uh, rhythm to the uh, presto. All right. On to Concerto 3. Um, Chandler's playing is really fleet in the opening adagio here. And he has a heavier, darker sound. Then most violinists who play this music, I'm thinking of people like Rachel Podger, who plays like the Vi the Vivaldi. When people play Vivaldi, they always have this really light touch. And uh, I've I've heard Chandler play Vivaldi, and he has a light touch in that too. I feel like he's heavier here. I guess he hears the music as being heavier, and he just plays that way. Or it's the recording, or it's just me. I can't really tell. I um, notice he has a very warm tone, but yeah. when he wants to, he gets that, I describe it as like a burr. It's like an huh. edge to the tone, but it's right. inside of the you know the wider warm tone just when he wants it, and I found that really attractive uh, right. to it. You know, so most of the time it sounds just warm, and then when there's a certain phrase, he can sort of uh, you know I don't know how exactly how yeah. he does it, not being a string player like that. Well, it's but, probably uh, his yeah, might be his natural sound. This kind of edge that comes through without changing the overall tonal quality and uh, right but that yeah. said this isn't aggressive playing no no and he he tends to play like sweetly even in the vivaldi but he, i think vivaldi's music is just by nature more aggressive um and i think brechanel's is, is slightly mellower although it's very similar sounding it doesn't have the same kind of like urgent like kind of attack to it that's not to denigrate it in any way this is a really beautiful you know album um Sure to put a smile on your face. Okay, second movement, Adagio Cantabile, gently rocking again, like a, it's got that watery kind of rhythm to it. And the third movement, Allegro, um, fast and comfortable, pleasing melodies, not aggressive. And uh, I liked that. Um, I especially like this melody, by the way. Um, Chandler, by the way, never there's virtuosity all over this music too, I should mention. And he never makes it, Chandler never makes it sound like it's a challenge. He just kind of tosses it off. He's, he's always comfortable, musical, and very melodic, even with really fast figuration. He's a good player. The next Symphonia, number three, for strings and continue in C major, has that chugging rhythm. He likes that rhythm a lot. Okay, he's this is the third time I'm hearing it on this recording. Uh, there's a really odd cello line in this particular work towards the end of the opening theme, and it cuts across the ensemble. It's, I think it's a semitone up. And then we hear later semitones down. It's kind of it's got this kind of moaning feeling, like it's an appoggiatura of some sort. But he really accents the uh, the the note that isn't part of the chord, like the the minor second note. Or I, I, it sounds like a minor second to me. I didn't really listen closely. Um, 
we hear a lot of uh, downward appoggiatories in the violins, and um, the logger starts suddenly after three minutes, and it has a slow dancing quality. Um, and then the allegro is like a dancing jig type melody or jig. And that's it for Opus One. We get an extra work, uh, the Overture Suite in B flat. Okay, the uh, Overture is always a French overture because that Louis the Fourteenth started this. Um, it's got when he would enter the court, they would have to play this um, this rhythm for him. And it starts with like the a, the slow overture, like dun 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 dun. Yes, that rhythm. And then it turns into a fugue. This is really traditional. You'll hear this all over Baroque music, especially if the work is called French Overture. It's French because it, it was it came out of Louis XIV's court. Okay, this is a change of pace from all the previous works. Very smart programming here. We needed uh, some variety. I mean, the other it, it would have been fine if it, this uh, disc had ended after those three works. But the, the change really did kind of prick up my ears a bit and I rather liked I was kind of happy to hear it um, the overture is brief and then we get into a kind of a chicken coop fugue where you kind of have like a clucking chicken sound in the violins like buck 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 you know like that kind of thing it flows very nicely <laughs> and clearly yeah there's actually a work by Handel that is referred to as the chicken coop fugue because it starts like with this um, <laughs> sort of rhythm like this uh quarter tone this quarter note uh pattern that speeds up into eighth notes and then 16 notes and it sounds like chickens all right after that we have a bunch of um, baroque dances they're very brief um there's a gavotte an aria which is a song it sounds like a dance though because it, it's got like very a very dancey on here yeah, yeah even though it's called aria but um aria would mean that the melody is accentuated but this uh, struck me as a dance there's a bore another aria again sounds like a dance menuet and trio a rondo, which is pretty plaintive. I think that's a little unusual for a rondo. And then it ends, as these works often do, with a jig, which is very bouncing and thickly scored, I said here. So I thought this was a gorgeous listening and great recording quality. Um, this is recorded close. There's some reverb on the strings, which is uh, well executed. I mean, it sounds like they're in a, uh, a fairly big empty room and um, doesn't hurt the recording at all. It makes it breathe a little bit, I thought. Uh, great listen for the morning, I thought. Um, yeah, let me see. The music is fairly straightforward with occasional harmonic or rhythmic quirks to keep things interesting. It's not really a challenge to the mind, so if you're kind of looking to relax, this would be a great thing to listen to. It's just pleasant and positive and uh, feels good. So there you go. Yeah, I like this one a lot. The recording, yeah. just like the their previous uh, recording the sound quality is top notch and uh, yeah it's Signal kind of classic good work to your engineers there yeah it's got that pressurized sort of uh, feel to it um if you listen to it in headphones you'll you know, feel the closeness and uh the sort of sonic pressure of the instruments and you can hear the balance really well and it may in fact remind you of vivaldi's music although it's a little bit different I think the cool yeah. thing is, uh, you know... It's the same kind of general style, but... The, the cool thing about this recording is, yeah, everyone knows uh, Vivaldi and, uh, you know, most of Bach's works and things here. But uh, here's a chance to hear something from that same period. And here it is um, hundreds of years later, and there's still new things to listen to uh, that haven't been uh, so much recorded yet. So uh, that was what was the charm of it for me, uh, you know, hearing some 
old new music that I hadn't heard before. It's, uh, you know, pleasingly familiar. And at the same time, it has a lot of fresh melodies and other ideas in the same style. So I'd definitely give this one a listen. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to the engineer, the recording engineer and producer on this record. His name is Simon Fox Gall. Fox dash Gall, G-A with the an accent. L. Uh, good work. Okay, I'm going to be looking for your name in these other Signum recordings. I bet he's on the Settecento record too. Got to look up those engineers. They they really are very responsible for a lot of the ways these um, yeah, that's for sure. recordings come out, you know. Okay, here we go. Now, this is the part where the uh, log flume starts going down the, uh, <laughs> down, down the waterway. Okay, we've 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 been on the uh, the cranking kind of ride up, you know, to the top, and uh, here we go. All right, my second choice is um is called Soul and Pat, and this is um a duo recording by the uh, violinist Patricia Patricia Kopachinskaya, and the Argent she's um. What did I say she was? She's Moldovan, I think. I can't. Oh, I should have written yeah, this down. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, and uh, Sol Gabetta, who's Argentinian, she's a cellist. So this is violin and cello. All right, and I picked. Now we've already. This is already the third, um, recording with uh, Kopachinskaya on it, and um, I, I should mention my favorite uh, pianist in the world or one of the two or three is a uh, Stephen Huff, British pianist, Stephen Huff. And he was on the very first episode we ever did. Um, we talked about him and this year he like Kopachinskaya, Patricia Kopachinskaya, uh, released, uh, two other albums and I haven't talked about either one of them. Why not? Why am I so focused on this woman's playing? I, I do like her playing by the way, and I like her ideas, but I love Stephen Huff. And the reason I didn't program the other two is because he did, um, uh, Schumann Piano Works, and they did a disc of Chopin Nocturnes, which are excellent. They're really fantastic. Highly recommended. Go hear them. Uh, but I didn't want to listen to like all the Chopin Nocturnes again. You know, to <laughs> kind of talk about what are you going to say? Yeah, you can talk about his playing in each one of them. But I'm kind of, I don't know. I think it's too much of a good thing, really. But it's good to have. I really love his playing a lot. And the Schumann was great too. It's a, it's another great recording. We will definitely be featuring Stephen Huff again on this podcast. But uh, Maybe, well, it depends. Maybe we will this year because um, if we run out of stuff, but um, even though they're excellent recordings. Okay, well, the thing about Patricia Kopachinskaya that I want to talk about here, I would have let this one go, but it had one of my favorite works of all time on it, the Ravel duo for violin and cello. And it also has the uh, Kodai uh Duo for violin cello, which is also fantastic. That's and the they're one often, I like the best. Yeah, yeah, they're often paired together. Um, and uh, the best recording to hear of both of those works, I'll recommend this to you, is um, by Kennedy and on the violin and Lynn Harrell on the cello. It was formerly an EMI recording. Now it's Warner Classics. I think they all merged into Warner Classics now. It's still available. Um, you can certainly hear it on a streaming service, so give that a listen. Those are pretty definitive performances, and they're fantastic. I do uh, like we'll Lynn Harrell's playing a lot. Yeah. Say again? I do like Lynn Harrell's playing a lot. Yeah, that's a great album, by the way. It's one of, it's one of my... Uh, it might be a Desert Island disc for me. They only let you take a a handful of discs to the Desert Island, though, so I don't know about that. <laughs> Maybe it wouldn't be. <laughs> I like all these rock, old rock recordings, too, you know, so <laughs> I have to bring some of those. All right, anyway. 
Um, this is the kind of album that was made to elicit discussion. So you hear this, you're going to want to talk about it. All right. Uh, nothing is predictable when Patricia Kopachinskaya is involved. All right. The first work on this album is uh, a Baroque work by Jean-Marie Leclerc. So here we are continuing in the Baroque condition, uh, the Baroque tradition. This is his tambourin in C major. Leclerc is a... Um, French composer from the Baroque era, mainly for the violin. He's well known for his violin works. Very different than Vivaldi's. They're kind of more suave, let's say, as opposed to showy, which would be Vivaldi and Brescianello too. Um, this is kind of like uh, this whole this whole program can be thought of as like a giant Dagwood sandwich because uh, the last work we're going to hear is also a Baroque one movement Baroque work, so. Keep that in mind. You kind of, you might want to, you know, do that. It's excellent programming, really, is basically what I'm saying. I'm just saying it in a funny way. Okay. Um, now, you hear you hear this work. It's a it's a Baroque work, and you know what Baroque music sounds like, so you know what to expect, right? Well, guess again. <laughs> they really do interpret. They go out of their way to really interpret this differently mm. than anything. You would expect it's got an aggressive tambourine on it, and uh, Pat plays a Pat Patricia plays a uh, Kobachinskaya plays an aggressive violin line. Uh, Solgabetta comes in later with the same aggressive dance energy. Uh, this does not sound like a work would have sounded in the Baroque era. There's just no way. Okay, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, contemporary uh, angst in this playing. I think. Um, they sound like they want to make a statement here, and this piece certainly does that. We're not, you know, this is a Baroque-era work, and they take a lot of liberties with it in their playing, so we're prepared for what's going to come now. And they laugh at the end of this. On the track, you can actually hear them laughing when it's over. So uh, they, they know they're, they're, they're being a little mischievous um, here. Okay. Here we go. Next work is by Jörg Widmann. He's a contemporary composer born in 1973. And he wrote 24 duos for violin and cello. We get two of them here. We get number 24, uh, Toccatina all'inglese. And this one has a lot of upward scales in it, and they're all pretty aggressive, as we would expect from these two, and especially from Kobachinskaya. There are lots of sawing and bowing effects. The attack on both instruments is hard and aggressive. And it's an intriguing piece, really. There are a lot of cat-like yowling sounds in it, like produced by, um, just I guess, um, uh, you know, the um, moving your fingers along the uh, the uh, fretboard. Although there are no frets on a violin or cello, I don't know what you would call that. The board, the the fingering board. Uh, they sound like they're having fun, but the question is, are we? Uh, I'd say yes. I, I like this to an extent. I like the pizzicati toward the end of the piece, by the way. Don't forget the uh, interesting quotations in there. Oh, what were they? I didn't write them down. I forgot. Do, 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 oh. oh, this is like the James Bond. James Bond theme, theme is uh, <laughs> yeah quoted in there several times. So. How did I? I should have written that down. So stupid. I thought I'd remember. Yeah, and, and that's what um, happens. Yeah, there's bowing, plucking, and slaps. I don't know. Did you say that? Um, it's like you know yeah, Stanley Clark on the violin. It's like it sounds to me like someone's like <laughs> slapping it. You know, I thought, oh, I haven't heard that before in classical music. But right. Yeah. All right. The, the next one is a uh, piece number twenty-one, Valse Bavaroise. So I'm guessing southern Germany, Bavaria. Mm. 
Um, this is a rather odd sounding waltz. And it has a lot of pauses in it. Uh, you're not going to dance to a waltz with a lot of pauses. It sounds like the waltzers have a limp in the rhythm that we're given. Uh, once the proper waltz begins at around uh, 45 seconds, it sounds very decadent. Like uh, this form is like dying and it's kind of like, you know, it kind of sounds like the, you know, the ruins of an old building made into a sound. Uh, the musicianship in putting across the various sounds and rhythmic changes is pretty amazing. Uh, both of these works, I'd say, were amusing. Uh, I liked them. Yeah, I don't know. They're not. Um, they're, they're trying to just kind of be fun. Next, one of our favorite composers here at Adult Music, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. That's uh, the great Johann Sebastian's eldest surviving son. This is a presto from one of his uh, piano sonatas. It's um, it's a multi-movement uh, solo piano piece. I think it has seven movements in total. This is the sixth movement. Um, here, it's, it's arranged for violin and cello, and it's played completely pizzicato, which is completely different than it would sound on any keyboard instrument. Yeah, they're going, I think they're going for making it like a harpsichord, right? And um, Maybe, that's yeah. What I, that's what I got out of it. Like Because uh, you can almost imagine... Imagine the harpsichord yeah. pluckiness of it, yeah. They certainly played it as quietly as a harpsichord because it's, this is a very quiet track. Mm. Um, Patricia Kopacitska's Pizzi, Pizzicati are barely audible at times. I was kind of found myself leaning in to hear it. Okay, next mm. <laughs> comes a piece by... <laughs> Here comes the, uh, the, formidable... the, mirror, the mirror at the amusement park that makes right. all funny shapes, yeah. Okay, Francisco Cold. Now, we have had issues on this podcast with this composer's music, namely in the uh, second ever episode where we heard his... Um, we heard two of his works, and one we thought was... Um, we we thought it kind of sounded too a little too twentieth century um, kind of to, for our taste, and then the second one was a La Lula lead, and we just hated that. So we kind of got we we kind of didn't think much of this composer. And th by the way, the um, that was on another a disc called Plaisir Illuminé, which Kopachinskaya was also on. Not only that, but she made she played his violin concerto this year too on another album that we haven't talked about um what's with these two why is he on every one of her albums are they dating or something i want to know let's get some classical music tabloids out there i want to know what's going on here <laughs> anyway this piece is called rizoma and um in my, in my notes i wrote this guy again with an exclamation point <laughs> okay anyway this this piece is pretty decent. I liked it. It didn't really sound terribly like uh, you know modernist, like uh, like post war or anything like that. It really sounded a little different. Um, it's listenable. It consisted of long drawn out tones contrasting the two instruments, and it's pretty good. Uh, there's a build up, and the piece mellows out midway through and becomes plaintive and quiet. By about uh, 4 minutes, 45 seconds, it's all crystalline harmonics, and I really loved that sound. So, Francisco Cole, you're back in my uh, my good books. I kind of thought this was pretty pretty nice. I thought this piece was eerily beautiful, or, or at least that sound was. And uh, it was clever to make the decrescendo end in this crystalline harmonic sound. There was a big decrescendo, and it ended with this really ghostly sound. It was kind of cool and beautifully executed here. So great musicianship there. The music then abruptly goes into an energetically rhythmic section with meaty bowing on both instruments 
And there are a few crescendos on Glissandi that I found appealing, especially by Kopachinskaya. So here you go. This is a, this is a likable or an, an interesting Francisco Cole piece. He's a contemporary Spanish composer. You want to say anything about that or no? Um, sometimes it sounded uh, serene and calm. But yeah. There's some of those uh, pitch changes uh, were kind of disconcerting, like, right. uh, you know, uh, listening I think he wants that, one way. Yeah. yeah, you know, it was a little mm. bit. Uh, and then, yeah, I was surprised with the change to the ending section. It was, it was kind of interesting. Yeah, the ending section, I kind of wanted it to go off into the ether after the crystalline section. But yeah, then he had the... yeah the loud ending so i guess if you're falling asleep and you're all happy in your chair he's gonna make you jump up at the end yeah. all right next track six to nine we get to the ravel piece by maurice ravel sonata in a minor for violin and cello i love this work so much it's just it's it's you can't really say beautiful but it's 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 fascinating to me the way he kind of the themes, I wouldn't call them beautiful or gorgeous, although there is a really beautiful theme in the uh, third movement. Um, but it's it's just intriguing to me. I just love the way he kind of winds the melodies around each other, especially with um, the opening is really intriguing too because you hear this um, pattern, this uh, ostinato pattern on the violin, and then the cello comes in and it's really high range and it's playing higher than the violin. And I just think that's just a really cool approach. It's not what you would expect because you expect mm-hmm. the cello to be the low instrument, right? And it's just a really clever intro. It confuses you a little bit. Of course, if you're watching it, you know what's happening. But on a recording, it kind of throws you for a loop. Anyway, here... Now, I mentioned that uh, Kennedy and Lynn Harrell did the, for me, what is the definitive performance of this work. Um, here, um, they're not competing with anybody, as you might expect. Um, this is uh, phrased and presented a little differently than any other recording I've heard. There are mutes at the beginning. Um, uh, I think on the violin, maybe on both instruments, it's very quiet. It's a bit faster and quieter than usual, and the melodies are given sort of uh, a different shape than we usually hear. Like, we usually will just hear the violin playing the ostinato pattern, but here it's being given like a slight crescendo and decrescendo to just kind of draw it out a bit. Um, The whole thing feels different, but it's still appealing. There's slowings of the tempo. Um, They make this movement expressive in a way that we don't think of it as being, if you're really familiar with it. A lot of it is... The movement is ghostly due to the muted sound, and that's unusual too. Anyway, I was intrigued by this. I liked it. It's definitely not going to be my preferred recording of it, but I was uh, really interested in what they were doing. Okay, second movement, Travif. Uh, this is a pizzicato movement. Travif means very fast. Um, these these two musicians are very impressive in shaping melodies while using a pizzicato technique, because usually you just kind of hear people plucking on the strings, really. Um this comes across as really musical in their hands. Usually it kind of comes across as sort of um, aggressive and sort of, uh, let's see, brutally modernist. And not here, though. Um, they get suitably harsh sounds on the accents. Um, and the harshness is a bit comical in their hands, too. And I thought that was a little unusual. It kind of sounds, it's got like almost this barking quality to it, like a dog. Um, the movement sounds more sinister than it ever has before for me in this performance. Um, it's perfectly realized, the ending of the section is perfectly realized as it slows and fades, and the harmonics after the 2 minute and 30 second mark are gorgeous. All right, the very beautiful third movement, Lant. Uh, 
This has a gorgeous theme at the beginning. It's first presented by the cello. Uh, this movement is played pretty straightforwardly here, uh, um, but with all melodic material meticulously handled as far as interplay and dynamics. This, this feels like a very highly prepared performance, as all professional performances are, but this really sounds like a lot of attention went into every little thing. Um, so, so more than usual is what I'm trying to say here. Soul's phrasing, soul gabetta, that means uh, phrasing and highlighting, highlights odd notes, and that draws the ear in. Uh, again, this movement gets preternaturally quiet toward the end when we hear the opening textures again. Um, it's very nice, but this doesn't come across as touchingly as it does in other performances, you know, because it, it sounds more intellectual to me. And it's probably because of the hyper um, preparation that the musicians obviously did on it. I think they kind of took the feeling away. They kind of wanted to present it, I think, as a more intellectual movement. Um, you know, clearly th their aim was the effect that they achieved here. But uh, I want to encourage you to hear the uh, Kennedy. And actually, it's better to hear that recording first and then hear this one to compare them to kind of see what they did. It's really interesting. The fourth movement, Vif avec Entraine. Again, this is a very alternative approach and more appealing uh, than usual to shaping the melody and handling dynamics and accents. I really liked this. This is a pretty um, fast movement. The quotes of the opening melody from movement one are highlighted and easy to spot here. I usually just kind of, they usually just kind of go by without me really registering them as strongly as I did here. Uh, the form of the movement is easy to follow in this performance too. It's A, B, sort of like a box suite movement, you know, when, where you get like this one section and then there's another section and the first section doesn't repeat. Think about the Goldberg variations theme, for example. Though this is much more aggressive material. There's nothing Baroque about it. Um, yeah, I love this performance. I thought it was pretty uh, intriguing and I much prefer Kennedy and Harold, but I thought this was great. I really liked it a lot. Yeah, I thought okay. it kind of yeah, keeps good. with the overall more playfulness of this uh this whole album this whole album yeah i've heard right. this in different performances before and it's got um i don't know um i mean it does have a lot of variety and they do draw out the uh sort of more uh placid and beautiful places uh, as mm -hmm. well but overall it's kind of i don't want to say light-hearted but um uh, not not too serious, but um, yeah. sort of, um, yeah. Uh, I think they just enjoy playing with each other a lot. Yeah, you can and hear so, that really clearly. Um, yeah. I think that sort of playfulness in their sort of um, uh, communication with each other uh, has a big influence on how they go through all the material on this album. So they're having a good time uh, with right. it rather than being overly serious about uh, the music, I think. Right. You can you can sort of uh, get a sense of what the tone of the album is going to be by looking at the album cover. On the right, you can see uh, Patricia Kopanchiskaya with her uh, index finger on her cheek, and she's kind of looking up in this kind of uh, I don't know, mischievous way, I guess you could say. Um, and that's pretty much what the album sounds like. Mm -hmm. So, I guess the cover does match the uh, the playing. Okay, track ten. This is a very long album. I should also mention it's eighty minutes, so the full. Um, length of a CD. Uh, the tenth um, track is by another contemporary composer, Marcin Markovitz. How, how cool is this? We have so many contemporary composers on this record, too. 
It's always good to hear them. Uh, this piece is called Interlude, and it opens with these haunting harmonics. And I love string harmonics, so I instantly liked this and took to the odd sound this makes. Um, the work grows into a dancey rhythm, and it ends with the crystalline glass harmonica. If you've ever heard the glass harmonica, which is the sound you get when you kind of wet the rim of a glass and move your finger on it, um, it kind of has that sort of sound to it. But although you don't hear a glass harmonica, you hear them on their string instruments making this effect. Um, it's very brief at 1 minute and 39 seconds. I thought it was super cool. I liked it uh -huh. a lot. Mm. I would say no. uh, don't play this one if your pets are in the house. <laughs> That's uh, probably true. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you make sure your volume is down if you want to save your tweeters. Yeah, uh, I thought I described that uh, glass harmonica thing almost as like a machine noise kind of oh. uh, effect. Yeah, uh, it's uh, yeah. Uh, it's interesting, but I'm glad it's brief. Uh, Some people do hear that as like a you know fingers on the fingernails on the chalkboard kind of right. sound. Yeah, you know, I I like it. I don't like the fingernails on the chalkboard sound. Must though, be my canine qualities that sort of yeah. made made me glad this was a short short piece. You know, <laughs> those canine qualities. Oh boy! All right, uh, Julien Francois Binden is the next composer. Now he, um, rather interestingly, uh, died this year um, at the age of one hundred four. He was born wow. in nineteen seventeen. Yeah, he just died, like, earlier this year. Um, so this is called La Fête au Village, Opus 9. And uh, this is sort of a suite. Um, and it's um, it sort of um, tells the story of um, this whole entire day in this small French village where this um, sort of uh, feast day is uh, being held, this village um, festival. And uh, the first, it's in six movements. They're all very short. It opens uh, dimanche, dimanche matin, and it starts with a wavering figure, which I guess is the haze of the opening of the day. Sort of reminds me of Bartok's night music a little bit. There are a lot of open fifths in the bass to give a pastoral sound, like a musette, which is kind of a lighter bagpipe kind of instrument. Then the day breaks. You'll notice it by the sudden rise in dynamic, and rocking figures sound like they represent bells pealing. They're just these kind of like back and forth sort of... Um, you know, strokes on the two instruments. It's, I think it's supposed to be a bell sound. My guess. Second movement, fanfare. Starts with shouts from the musicians. Uh, you know this is a contemporary work or 20th century work when you hear that. And I think this was composed in around 1940 or so, around that era. Um, fanfare begins as a kind of circus dance. There's a frowny violin melody played over a chugging bass line in the cello. The whole, it sounds like yowling cats. We've already well, heard the yowling cats sound earlier. This sounds... Uh, when I heard this, it reminded me... Uh, the place closed down now, probably because of this, but uh, there was a little restaurant, and they had a um, you know, a, a record player in there. Right. But there was, it wasn't the record. It was something wrong with the turntable. You know, right. It was like out of alignment. And so every record they put on it had this <laughs> horrible shift in pitch bend uh and that's what the, the, this piece is uh, yeah. yeah it's written that way um yeah so listen to the violin here it it has the effect of a warped record uh, right sort of like a, it's pretty yeah it's, it's pretty interesting um yeah i wonder how that's written in the score like uh yeah you know a la 
bad turntable or something. I, I bet their arrow is like <laughs> yeah. pointing down towards where they're supposed to end these glissandi and Could stuff. Be, yeah. I don't know. All right. The third movement is a discord du syndic, which is uh, a syndic is a, uh, he's represents the bank. He's like a crediting union or something like that. And uh, Patricia Kopachinskaya states the title before the music begins here. They they say the names of the movements like before they begin. You, you hear their voices, and I'm pretty sure it's uh, Kopachinskaya talking. Um, judging by the uh, movement, uh, the syndic in question is probably a blowhard because he sounds really annoying. <laughs> the violin line, anyway. Fourth movement, fille et garçon, boys and girls. Uh, the title is stated, and then the two musicians start playing. This is a lively work and has a slow dancing middle section. Fifth movement, Pont de Danse, Dancing Bridge. Uh, the title is stated at the beginning, and this has a country dance rhythm. And the rhythm sounds a bit off, and the melody at the end of phrases is off as well. It's a tricky rhythm for the dancers in the brief middle section. If uh, Assuming, you know, we're imagining that this is a, maybe it's a, like a local village band who can't play very well. And <laughs> the composer has um, articulated that in his score, and they're playing it like that. She's exceptionally good at expression. I'm giving her all the credit, but Solgabeta deserves all the credit here, too. She's pretty great as well. Um, and the last movement is called Soir. Um, that they announced the title, and um, which it means evening. Okay, this starts as a simple contrapuntal material. It's all slow with nice harmonics and the violas, the vi the violin, I guess, indicating the end of the day. And that's how the piece ends. It's charming. Eh, charming isn't the right word. Amusing, I guess, would be the word. Yeah. Okay, here's a, the next composer is a name that strikes fear in my heart when I see it. Yanis <laughs> Xenakis. He's a Greek composer, and he was very much into the uh, dodecaphonic 12-tone. Well, no, actually, no, he wasn't. I'm sorry, I take that back. He um, he was very unique, actually. He um, worked out his um, forms and musical intervals through rigorous mathematics. I think he might have been a mathematician as well. And it wound up sounding uh, pretty harsh, basically. But this work uh, isn't one of those works. It's more of a... It's, it's really unusual for him. It's called, uh, it's in Greek, diply zia. And a zia is a Greek couple dance, and diply means doubled, so a double time Greek couple dance. And that's what it sounds like. Uh, I was dreading this when I saw his name, because um, he forms his music after mathematical formulas, as I said. But this is just a dance, and it's got a bounce to it and a very meaty, hearty rhythm. It's in three sections, and they're all easily discernible. You can tell where one ends. And the next begins. The ending is an aggressive, exciting dance. So a good piece. I was—I didn't actually realize that he had written music like this. Yeah, this was next. Fun. What am I, What was that? It was pretty fun. I like the yeah. uh, modulations in the sections and uh, lots of the changing things. Right, and, uh, driving rhythms. Yeah, I, I, I just don't want. <laughs> I don't want listeners to go away and say, oh, Yadis Zanakis sounds great. I think I'll listen to more of his music and then you're going to get hit with all those really dense mathematically formulated uh, works. Although you should go and check it out just so you know what it sounds like, okay? It's it's not that it's bad. It's just I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get hate mail from all these like modernist types now that are going to be like, oh, you know, you don't understand music, you know? <laughs> anyway. Yeah. The next one, one of my favorite composers of the 20th century, uh, George Ligeti. I really love his music. 
Um, this is called Homage à Hilding Rosenberg, and this is very short. It's a minute and a half. Uh, the usual inventive harmony from this composer is in this work, and it comes across as a sad lament. It's a bit frowny in its melodic shape. A lot of frowns on this album, but like <laughs> comic frowns, you know, like, you know, somebody in clown makeup frowning, you know, exaggerated frowns that can't be real, that kind of thing. All right, next we get to the other centerpiece of this um, recording. Two centerpieces, how can that be? Well, you can in an ellipse. So here we go. So think of this program as a big ellipse. This is the second, uh, the Zoltan Kodai, Duo for Violin and Cello in D minor, Opus 7. This is a fantastic piece that everybody should be familiar with. It starts Allegro Serioso, Non Troppo. Um, there's an exciting, emphatic opening in this too. Very hearty, weighty melody. Uh, the violin starts with a folk-like Hungarian melody. We're going to hear a lot of those. Uh, the second theme is Quiet. And the material keeps changing. Last week I had mentioned in Eric Tanguy's music that uh it kind of sounded like panels like the uh the material just um goes on i feel like that's kind of the shape of this it just kind of it moves from episode to episode um that's how that's how i picked it up i've never actually studied this work so i don't really know um they played this work pretty straight um i think this is kind of a little closer to well, i don't really know the East European uh, background of um, Patricia Kopachinskaya, so I think she knows a lot about what's in this, even though it's not her nationality. Um, there's a lot built into the movement to keep the attention anyway, and it's a very long movement, nine minutes long. The The next movement, Adagio, is also very long. Um, this um, is played softer than it usually is, although it's a pretty quiet movement in general. Well, it starts out that way. There's a crescendo, then quick decrescendo, the violin very quietly plays its line. Again, the uh, harmonic, the um, what do I want to say, dynamics are exaggerated. It goes on from section to section, as the first movement did. At least that's the way I heard it. Um, this piece's dynamics and techniques seems like it was written with these two in mind. I thought they played this extremely well. The third movement, Maestoso Largamente, ma non troppo lento. This is a short movement. Um, the violin starts with dramatic melody. And it trails off, gives way to double stop cello pizzicati. It's really exciting, like changing textures all the time. It's it's really amazing the inventiveness that Kodai brings to this um, uh, composing for just two instruments, two string instruments. Um, the violin plays some figurations, and it seems like uh, the violin is having all the say. The cello is responding quietly to everything the violin plays. The contrast seems to be between the two instruments in this movement, like their volumes. It's as though the violin is trying to drag the cello to a louder dynamic while the cello is encouraging the violin to quiet down. The cello has its way at the end. And the fourth movement, presto. Fast repeated notes set the rhythm, so this is like a fast, I guess, a Hungarian dance type of uh, rhythm. Uh, the middle section has a, or the middle of the movement, I should say the middle section. The middle of the movement has a cool folk melody um, played very quietly. There are a lot of exaggerated dynamics throughout the work, and there are a lot of quick silver mood changes, especially in this movement, and really in the whole work in general. Um, this work, to me, was sort of a microcosm of this entire album. It's almost like this was the model that they you know, with all these quick changes and these sudden, like, uh, oddities of the, um, you know, these sudden unexpected changes, I feel like 
the entire program of this um, album was modeled after this work. Anyway, we get to the the uh, end piece of bread on our sandwich here. Johann Sebastian Bach, Prelude Number 15 in G Major. Um, this is a keyboard prelude. Here it's um, arranged for um, violin and cello pizzicati. And this is very quiet and charming. Um, Kopachinskaya's shaping of the melody over the pizzicati throws it into sharp relief. It's a tranquil ending to an adventurous album. I think our two uh, mischievous um, players here are tiring out and getting ready for bed at this point of the album. The ending kind of echoes the ending and shape of the Zbinden piece, the swa movement, where um, the, it's the end of the day and it just feels a little weary. They play it that way here. This album has a lot of mirrors on it, I would say. Um, I'm going to recommend... I th- it's it's good. It's not an easy... Well, it's, an, it's an enjoyable... Listen, it's kind of a jokey album. Um, and it's not something that's going to stay in the background if that's what you're looking for. You might want to skip this. It demands that you listen. And I think it's kind of a fun record to hear. Yeah, I I guess um, I wouldn't listen to it again for the compositions other than the Kodai. Yeah. Uh, that work uh, has a lot of interesting, uh, it sure unique does. things. And I want to hear that again. Uh, the other try to hear the uh, Kennedy and Lynn Harrell recording. Yeah, I want to. really I'd good like to hear that. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. everything else was playful and fun, an interesting program, uh, but the Kodai is definitely the piece uh, compositionally that uh, caught my interest uh, right. the most and had a lot of uh, interesting uh, harmonic things and uh, changes uh, within each movement. Uh, so I'm, I'm going right. to go and listen to that one. At, at least once more. Yeah, by the way, for listeners, Kodai, Zoltan Kodai, was uh, Bela Bartok's pal, his countryman, and his um, co-conspirator in uh, the uh, collecting of Hungarian folk music, which was the big project that they both the both of them worked on in the early 20th century. He had like so, a whole educational system for right. music too, didn't he? Yeah, uh, well, the both of them yeah. Yeah. did, but yeah, he wound up kind of... Uh, uh, actually working in the schools and really teaching right. it. It's pretty amazing. And they're still using it today, I think, in Hungary. And they certainly turn out some pretty amazing musicians there. So they're doing it right. Okay. Our last classical album is a contemporary composer, uh, Sofia Gubaidulina. She is... Um, she was born in 1931, and so she's 90 years old this year. She's still alive. Uh, these works were, are all pretty recent, so uh, she's still actively composing. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about Sofia Gubaidulina. When she was younger, she lived in the Soviet Union. She was, um, let me see, I'm sure I wrote this down, where, where she was born. Uh, in Tartistan in 1931. Uh, she now lives in Hamburg in Germany, which is also where Arthur Parrot lives, I think. Okay. Um, she um, met Shostakovich when she was a student, and Shostakovich heard her music and rather famously tell, told her, and this is during the, you got to remember, this is during Soviet times when um, there were kind of, um, you know, there was a, a sort of expected type of music you were supposed to um there was an expected effect you were supposed to have. Anyway, Shostakovich heard uh, Gubadulina's student work and said to her, um, 
you must continue on your mistaken path, <laughs> and, which is a really great qu quote. <laughs> and continue on it, she did. Now, Gubaidulina is she her head is in a very spiritual place. Now, we don't want to mistake this for her sounding like Arvo Pert. She doesn't sound anything like him. In fact, her music is a bit uh, intellectual and challenging. Okay, and we'll get to that when we talk about this a little bit more, these three works a little bit more. Okay, this is on the Deutsche Grammophon label. Um, oh, I should have mentioned that the Soul and Pat was on the Alpha label. Okay, this this work, okay, is on. this is on the Deutsche Grammophon label, label and the uh, artists are the Gewandhaus Orchestra Leipzig, conducted by Andres Nelsons. And I found that to be really uh, attractive as well, because Nelsons, um, in recent years, has put out, I believe there are four now, albums of uh, Shostakovich symphonies with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and they are fantastic. You should dig those up. So when I saw him uh, uh, conducting Gubadulina's music, who's who I really like, and I, I'm just captivated by her music, it's not easy. Um, it's it's not hard to listen to. It's, it's not really off-putting or anything, but it's it's dense and it's kind of intellectual it kind of you think about it long after you've heard it and you i feel i find myself trying to work it out like what, what she's trying to say i like how she doesn't waste any like mental energy naming the movements of her works well they're all one movement <laughs> works <laughs> just part one part two and so on yeah how, how did they do that on uh oh because i have a cd of this and it's just three tracks for the three oh, works okay yeah um, so they how they labeled it up on yeah. the digital versions and then yeah. kind of uh split up is just as parts numeral parts you know oh. so uh most of them most of them run into uh you know each other uh although there are yeah. breaks in some of them but uh, this this is really hard to um describe the arc yeah. of what's going on in these well, parts yeah. yeah i was i was starting to like write down like ep the episodes and i said uh, i'm not going to do that <laughs> it's a little too you, complicated like, incidents that happen and yeah <laughs> you know you can well, create your own narrative with those but uh, i'm not sure yeah well i think yeah. that you're that's really what you have to do with instrumental music yeah. you don't have any words to tell you what's happening so you, know, you sort of uh, know what the composer was intending, and then you kind of apply it to your own experience, and that's how you understand music, really. It's personal to every one of us, and it's probably different for all of us, too. Anyway, um, I was, let me see here. Um, Gubay Dulina, I should mention, is currently in her third and final year as the Gavon House's composer in residence. Now remember, she's 90 years old now. Okay, she combines, and this is um what Andres Nelson says about her. She combines intellect, spirituality, and sensuality in her music. Um, I agree. That's a pretty good uh, description of it. Uh, her music focuses on our relationship to God and our private. They are private dialogues with the divine between her and the divine, and we are in there eavesdropping on these conversations. So maybe you can think about uh, if you've ever read um, any of the uh, writings of like the saints, you know, like, um, oh, Julian of Norwich or something like that, you know, and you, you feel like you're sort of eavesdropping in, like, except here it's happening in real time as the music goes by. So think about it like that. But don't, when you think spiritual, in this case, you shouldn't think tranquil this is not tranquil music at all in fact a lot of it's very very loud and like uh 
piercing. The dynamics on these recordings are absolutely spectacular, by the way, and you might want to warn your neighbors before you put it on because it gets pretty loud and boomy at times with the yeah, uh, bass crashing drum percussion, hits are, uh, the bass drum yeah. hits. There's all kinds of other stuff, too. It's not all loud. It gets very quiet as well. It's just extreme dynamics. Okay, you could say that all these three works are from her late period, although you never know because... Um, She's 90 now, and Elliot Carter lived to be 103, and when he was in his like early 90s, he kind of started in on this new style that he continued for seven years. It's like a whole new period for him, so you just you can't really say. Um, she tends to group her works together in larger complexes, uh, each one developing out of another, and circling around the same theme and reworking common material. And she refers to this as cultivating and compares herself to a gardener. Okay, so she's kind of like replanting certain plants in another part of in another work or something like that you could think of it like that now this material that she's re reworking it isn't like a, a terribly memorable melody or anything like that so you really have to focus and figure it out if you want to know okay for this album there are three works and they all have to do with uh again her relationship to the divine uh the first one is called Dialogue I and You, and the second is The Wrath of God. Oh boy, you know mm. what that's going to sound like. And the third one is called The Light of the End, and that's an earlier work from 2003. These other ones are from 2016, 2017 or so, or 2018, or even later, 2019. In the years 2016 to 2018, she composed an oratorio. An oratorio, think about Handel's Messiah. That's an oratorio. It's like a sung text that tells a story, usually. So it's like an opera that's sung and not staged. And this this oratorio was called On Love and Hatred. Okay, it sounds like a philosophical treatise, just from the title. It was a musical appeal to humankind to follow God's commandments and to overcome hatred through the conciliatory power of love. Boy, we should just airdrop this oratorio into America. <laughs> Something like that <laughs> now. Uh, sounds like they could use it. It sounds like a lot of the world could use it, actually, at this point. Okay, so two works on this recording were generated from the oratorio. The first two, Dialogue, I and You, which is a violin concerto, and the orchestral work, The Wrath of God, track two. Track three is unrelated. It's earlier. All right. The first work, Dialogue, I and You. This is her third violin concerto, and it's written for Vadim Repin, who uh, performs it here. Um, I remember the second one she wrote. I can't remember. The, it had a... Latin title. It was for Anne Sophie Mutter. And it was really intriguing because it didn't have violins, the highest, um, except for the solo violin. The, it just eliminated the entire violin section. The violas were kind of taking the lead in the uh, string section. Mm. It's really interesting. It was an interesting sound. That's not happening here, though. This is a pretty, this is, I, if you want to call it that, more straightforward. It's about 20, it's 22 minutes long and it's a single movement. So it's fairly short, I guess, for a violin concerto. The title, I and You, Dialogue I and You, recalls Martin Buber's book of the same name, and in fact, that's kind of where the idea comes from. The book describes the world as dichotomous, or divided into opposites. So if there's good, there has to be bad, that sort of thing. That's the way we see the world. But from the God's eye view, it's not like that, apparently. We, we are at least told that in spiritual works. I'm still working to see that. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> if, and when I get there, I'll let you know. Anyway, the, the complex dialogue between the solo violin and orchestra encaps encapsulates the idea 
the violin being I and the orchestra you. Okay, so the violin and orchestra are talking to each other. So sort of like in a Beethoven work, really, except they're struggling with each other there. Okay, I wrote all these notes. Um, I can't really explain this. The, the orchestra, basically the violin is trying to convince the orchestra of something, and at times the two are in agreement, like the orchestra will pick up what the violin is playing and continue it and vice versa, but often they're opposed to each other. So, and th this kind of goes on for the entire 22-minute work. Uh, it's a very listenable work, and it's often very pleasing to the ear in orchestration. And it's also, if you're kind of an intellectual type, it's pleasing to the mind in its clever interactions between the uh, soloist and orchestra, and also in the orchestral harmonizations and timbres. There are a lot of really great sounds. The orchestra is huge in this, and uh, she really uses a lot of the percussive, um, the metallic percussion timbres to a beautiful effect. Um, yeah, there's a genuine conversation for most of the work. And uh, I found that very intriguing. Okay, the second uh, work is The Wrath of God. This is for an orchestral, and it was composed at the same time as I and You, or Ich und Du. Um, it was, and it expands the seventh movement of the oratorio on love and hatred. So if you listen, to, if you somehow can hear that work, the material comes from the seventh movement. It turns this into an independent orchestral work. This is a shimmering depiction of the Day of Judgment, or the Dies Irae. Now, you can hear sort of, if you know the Dies Irae melody, Dies Irae, Dies la, you can hear fragments of that, but you never actually hear the theme stated. You often do, actually, in classical works, especially in the 19th century. It means Day of Wrath that day, okay? Um, okay. By the way, this work isn't finished. Um, she's going to um, expand it into a two-movement work and dedicate it's dedicated to Beethoven, or, or in quotation marks, the great Beethoven. So there's going to be another movement added to it one day. Uh, anyway, it starts with some uh, spectacular low brass blares, and uh, this really wowed me with its recorded sound. It really was very three-dimensional, real chest cavity stuff throughout this work. Um, I think the uh, Day of Judgment... You know, in in uh, Christianity, it's a a day of great uh, worry and fear and things like that. But I think it's just going to sound fantastic, according to if this work has anything to say about it. You also get um, lots of gongs of doom in here. Right, too. there are gongs of doom, <laughs> and they hit the chest cavity in a very appealing yeah. way too. I have to say. Okay, the beginning brass merge into something mildly contrapuntal, which is always excellent when that happens in any piece of music, as far as I'm concerned. And there's a lot of uh, rising in the strings. They, it's almost like they're trying to climb out of a pit. You talked about the devil and keep the devil in the hole. It sounds mm. like uh, where the people are trying to get out of the devil's hole here or something. That's the kind of the image I had. Um, but it's often interrupted by the brass. The brass seem to be the uh, the doomy kind of part of this work. Uh, the, th the funny thing is, is they're, they're really appealing to listen to here. They're beautifully recorded. I guess they're sort of like uh, the villain in an opera where he, he gets all the best tunes. <laughs> you know? I don't know the the various. This is an extremely densely orchestrated work, and there are a lot of voices happening at the same time. Um, but they're all clearly audible and followable in this. First of all, excellently clear recording, but the rehearsal that must have gone into this 
is really mind-blowing. I really wish I could have been there to hear it. It's, it's, I, I don't know how you conduct a work like this and get it you know, so, uh, all the, all the sections so clear. It sounds extremely virtuosic for every section of the orchestra. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really something. Uh, by the way, there's a brief moment of sparkling metal percussion with winds and then strings playing a melody over it that I really loved, sort of in the middle or a little later than the middle. You'll notice it when it comes up. Um, there's a second or two of silence, and this big first section ends. The brass play their ominous Dies Irae-like theme towards the end. Then we start hearing, I think, a repeat. This this work might not be episodic. I think I think there's repeated material at the end because I recognized a lot of this from the beginning. And it ends with a sparkling percussion and brass. And uh, this work is a real tour de force. I thought it was uh, extremely compelling as a piece of music. It's ominous, but not yeah. bad at the end. I guess we're all saved at the end, Russ. <laughs> we're I in wrote, the day of God judgment. has vanquished his enemies. That's yeah. what I thought of, yeah. But well, I'm, guessing we're not, I'm guessing the, we're not the enemy, though, because uh, it sounds like it ends positively to me, anyway. It Compared to the previous work, which I thought, even though you have this dialogue between the violin and the orchestra, the orchestration is rather minimalistic, I thought. Um, I didn't think she added like extra layers of sound uh, to the orchestration, you know. So oh, you mean in this in this in this work? No, in the previous work. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, I thought she was. I don't know if it was a conscious decision, but I found like, you know, it was easy to make out the different sections in the orchestral. Right. Uh, it was also responses. a quieter work, I think, as well. Uh, but here, yeah, there's huge kind of, uh, you know layers of things going on that are uh you know make it a lot more dense and it's a big contrast to uh, what's going on before and lots of surprises you know just when right. you know you you think something's happening another gong or huge brass fanfare comes out at you so uh, yeah pretty interesting yeah this was the the virtuosity of the orchestra playing this was really astonishing. Not only are they playing really difficult parts, but the conductor is managing to balance them in a really virtuosic way as well. I thought this was just a fantastic performance. It really was sort of mind-boggling. You know, I wonder if there will ever be another recording as good as this, or even another recording. Yeah. We'll have to see. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll get, I'll, I want to say more about that uh, later, but let's get to the third and final work. The Light of the End. This piece is based on the irreconciliability. I hope I said that There's right. There's a big one for you. Yeah. There you go. I went to school. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, a lot of musicians don't don't really have such big vocabularies, so I don't know. Uh, I think they, they, they speak in tones. Anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, the irreconciliability between the natural overtones and of the... Uh, the natural overtone row, they said here, and tempered tuning. Oh, this is a highly intellectual topic. Now, one of the things we need to explain here is that the Western uh, tuning system is designed so that there's an equal space between... Well, actually, they're not equal. They're, they're slightly uh, tampered with so that um, the octave... So, so that it'll come, the uh, the scale will come out, and the octave and the uh, the higher octave is kind of like a 
how would you say, a multiple of the uh, lower octave as far as frequencies go. So if you have a 440 hertz uh, A, you'll have an 880 hertz um, A would be the next A, all right? There's a, I hope I did that right. Um, but um, that doesn't happen if you space the notes out um, like mathematically the way uh, nature they, they appear in nature. You don't wind up with an 880 hertz A if you start with a 440 hertz A. You, you wind up with something like an, I don't know, 885 hertz A or something. It's it's a little off. I don't know how much it is. I, I have this in a book somewhere, but I don't remember the number. Let's see, if I was teaching this in a university, then I would know because I'd be teaching it every year. Anyway, you can sort of, if you don't really know what we're talking about, you can sort of think of this as the days of the year. A circle has... 360 degrees in it and um so that would mean that if a full year would have 360 days if it was a perfect circle right but no there are 365 days in the year and sometimes 366 so that everything gets adjusted so um nature isn't it doesn't conform to mathematics let's say i i don't know if i said that right you can kind of use mathematics to figure out a lot of things in nature, but it doesn't. It does its own sort of thing. It has an order, but that order isn't like uh, following like a mathematical like precision, let's say. Or I, I suppose it is, but it's following its own mathematical precision, not the one we want to impose on it. All right, so that's basically the situation here. You have the natural world, which is um, the brass in this work. And the rest of the orchestra, which is going to be the uh, tempered tuning. Um, to uh, the composer, um, this work encapsulates the irreconcilability of nature and real life. And don't we know about this? Uh, this is really the entirety of, uh, of uh, human history is, is basically, this is one of the conundrums of human history. By the way, there's a fantastic piece by Charles Ives called The Unanswered Question, which sort of um, addresses this issue in a different way. Uh, give that a listen. Anyway, back to this. Um, nature, we usually neutralize nature, um, but uh, she doesn't allow that to happen here. Um, the title ref of this um, work, The Light of the End, refers to the final section of the work, so I guess the end of the piece, in which the dazzling sonorities of the symbols afford a ray of hope. But of course, it's hope only. We don't get... Uh, the, the I, I guess we learn how to live with um, within nature, yeah, but we don't conform to it. I don't think humanity is capable of conforming to nature. So this sort of idea and uh, this work, in fact, kind of throw, has a lot of. Um, you can think of this as having a lot of commentary on the current like uh, environmental situation and the environmentalist movement. Um, we can't ever be in in complete harmony with nature just because of our nature. So we're always going to have to make certain trade-offs, although we're never going to dominate nature either. So some sort of balance has to be struck. Anyway, that's what I'm getting from this whole philosophical argument. Um, the brass are playing in the uh, natural tuning, and they sound particularly harsh against the sound of the rushing strings at the beginning. And I loved that harsh sound. It's very cool. I was like, whoa, when I heard this, okay? Uh, don't, uh, if you're planning a relaxing evening, uh, don't listen to this. <laughs> it's not a <laughs> relaxing piece, okay? The strings actually sound warm when they're playing their chorale-like chords. Again, she's given the strings, like, material that's got a sound appealing 
it's our, our human nature, I guess. The brass are always harsh in this piece. Now, they don't have to be in that natural tuning, but she's organized it so that it will be. And again, I enjoyed Gubaidulina's very large arsenal of orchestral sounds. There are a lot of chiming percussion sounds in this work, too, just like in The Wrath of God. Uh, the orchestra has really put through their paces, and they sound great here. Again, kudos to Andres Nelson's The Conductor. Um, whose work I've been admiring a lot lately, and uh, especially here. This is a really amazing set of performances. Uh, there are some tremendous combined orchestral sounds in the last four minutes of this piece, and it sounds inconclusive, really, uh, at the end. And we do hear those gorgeous chimes that she talks about in her program notes, and the violin line tails off with a kind of uh, dot, dot, dot to be continued quality, or, or is continuing on sort of quality. Um, so, in conclusion, you want to say anything about this work, or do you want to just sum up at the end? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's massive orchestration here. I think uh, yeah. there's marimba in here. Um, the uh, I think there's like a, a big triangle part too. You know, triangle yeah. usually gets a couple of dinkles and twinkles, but there's there are lots of other bells, and um, there's like a soon gets some wandering there's some interesting horn like cries uh in there and lots of right. low brass but the coolest uh brass part is like at the end uh well in part eight it's uh it must be i guess it's tuba uh it's sort of i guess this reminds me of like leviathan or something it's like huh. this like <laughs> legendary beast that's like you know just it's yeah. like uh you know waking <laughs> from uh, hibernation or something uh at the end uh and and then it it's right before that kind of you know final ending that shows the light uh it's mm. sort of uh it's like the beast is snoring or something <laughs> and then uh yeah then, would the beast the, be the brass here or like the nature's uh I don't know, yeah. And then, of, yeah. then you get that harp, too, in the, contrast. This, this is right. what I mean by this piece. These pieces make you kind of think about them long yeah. afterwards. You're kind of trying to figure out a narrative to put on them. So you have this yeah. like this uh, beast, you know, low brass part. And then in contrast, you've got uh, harp and then the high strings, uh, violin or viola there. And then, uh, you know, the xylophones and triangles uh like tinkling you know so you have this full spectrum of uh sound so i thought you know the the use of contrasting timbres and all these different sounds in addition to the you know the different uh, kind of tunings and things make it a big uh a contrast you know it's not like uh a palette where you know if you're if you relate it to colors where you're you know you're picking out your living room and you've got you know <laughs> I'm not really good with names of colors. You know, I like no, right. I know like five colors. That's about it. And then, you know. So, so you other, don't know what like puce is? No, or cornflower <laughs> or any of that. I don't corn know any flour. of that. But I didn't even know that was a color. It is. <laughs> I thought you made God, like. Thank God we love music. Huh? I thought you made, you know, tacos from that or burritos or something. But yeah. No, anyway, yeah. I can tell when, um, you know, colors match but i don't know what they're called and so the tones that match so here is like the opposite effect you've got these you're going for that contrast to get different effects and so you're constantly getting this uh kind of um you know 
timbre shock amongst all the other things that are going on. So in that sense, it's really cool sort of display of the colors of the orchestra uh, here. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, it's hard to, that's how I had to appreciate it more, more than in a development of like a musical narrative. I know there's something like that going on, but in order to draw me into it, I was sort of focusing mm -hmm. on the sounds I was hearing at any one point and right. enjoying those contrasts and different combinations in the work. Yeah. Now we, we had talked about Eric Tongi's music as difficult to follow, but this is different. There's a real Tongi's music had content. It's it's not empty music. It was mm -hmm. very good, but this has like extreme depth to it. This uh, this woman's like a real philosopher, as far as like uh, she's a sort of a philosopher composer, you could say, or maybe a priestess composer, maybe since she's so interested in these spiritual elements. Um, now, if just to sum up for this, I want to really proselytize for her a bit because I've heard her. I've been listening to her music when it came out. And it's it's sort of rare to get recordings of her music, but I remember the Kronos Quartet recorded her string quartet number three, I believe it was, um, on one of their albums long ago when I was in college and I was just getting interested in this music. And I've been kind of had an ear out for her works ever since. It's it was a little too hard for me then, but I was it pulled me in somehow, and I kept listening to it. And it's the kind of music that you really have to live with for a while. It's not easy. You're not gonna get it but it's not off-putting by any means okay it's it's hard but it's not like ear splitting or anything like that it's exciting i would say um if you're the kind of person that likes uh, that thinks classical music should be relaxing and beautiful you should steer clear of this <laughs> but i would urge you to listen with an open mind and if you're an intellectual type you should definitely hear this try to absorb the exciting intellectual ideas that are being put forth in what i thought was an exciting musical way um, Gubaidulina's work is very listenable, but intellectually and spiritually challenging. Though I don't find it exhausting at all. I find it really compelling. And like I said, I keep thinking about it after I've finished listening to it. It's very rewarding music if you stay with it. The intellectual ideas behind the works are all fresh. So it's, it's not only this old, like, uh, oh, you know, you know, any, any old, like, uh, you know, sort of a uh, philosophy from uh, Thomas Aquinas's time about Christianity. This is about the living God now. <laughs> and uh, the realization of these ideas in musical form is exciting as well. Um, I, I, I'm trying to parse its message all the time, which is always difficult with instrumental music anyway. Um, and I really want to read something about her music, actually. It might help give me a little vocabulary to talk about it with. But this woman, I, in my opinion, is an international treasure, and I would really like to hear a lot more of her works recorded. Now, I'm going to guess that that's not an easy thing to do because these sound really difficult to pull off um maybe andres nelson's will start on a on a project to record a lot of her music i wish people more paid more attention to her music and programmed it more often and i urge you to hear this work and i am done for the classical music there it is all right well all right we've got a interesting amusement park ride through the classical uh yeah this, this is week. the uh yeah yeah it's uh it's not easy listening, but uh, it's interesting listening. Uh, well, there you go. I think that's, our yeah. theme. that's a kind of theme with this particular... The thing is, we didn't plan this ahead of time. It just sort of no, happened that way. No, it just turned out yeah. that way. Yeah. 
Right. I love and when that happens, really. You have a theme that you're not even aware of when you start. Yeah. So in the jazz uh, this week, uh, you know, in the past few weeks, I've had uh, so many recordings on my listening list that I was, uh, you know, kind of grouping them by instrumental categories. We had, uh, you know, trumpets one week, and we've done some uh, saxes and things. And well, this week was going to be trombone week, except uh, when I listened to all of the trombone recordings, uh, the other two of three, I thought. Uh, we're not quite up to the uh, same standard, and uh, I thought you might get boned out. And uh, yeah, I, I was kind of get... boned out by the trombone album you picked, but we'll get to it. When oh we get no, there. that <laughs> that to me is that that's a great one. Uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised, but I'll I'll have something okay. to say about it too. But so, anyway, yeah. um, what I had is also on the list is a lot of other uh, things that uh, you know. I can't wait for there to be uh, three recordings of a category like this. So uh, this is sort of the uh, odd assortment of instruments we don't hear enough of. Uh, so sort of uh, the uh, potpourri assorted uh, instrumentation week. Uh, so yeah. uh, starting out... I, yeah, I sort of want to... I want to say, though, I sort of think... Um, I prefer to, instead of like trying to plan a theme, which we do occasionally on this show, but I like to just kind of put just the three recordings together and just kind of try to find the hidden theme in there somewhere, you know, what yeah. it might be, figure it out later. You know, I rather like that challenge. Yeah, it's another way to do it. Yeah. Uh, anyway. That's what we're doing this week. <laughs> yeah. This one, uh, we're going to start out with uh, a violin. You know, once in a while, we get some... We've. We've done a previous uh, jazz violin recording uh, in an earlier episode, but not recently. And uh, so here we have an album called Poetry on the ACT label. And uh, this is the Polish violinist Adam Baldich. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, the Adam Baldich Quintet. And uh, Baldich plays uh, not only violin, but uh, also Renaissance violin. Oh. which is kind of an interesting choice for jazz music. Uh, but the style of his jazz uh, really lends itself to uh, this interesting tone, uh, which is a big part of his style here. And uh, he's joined as a special guest on this album also by uh, Paola Freis, the, uh, well, I will always say uh, Italian trumpet. He's actually Sardinian. Uh, oh. One of the two... Uh, big names uh, in Italian jazz world on trumpet and flugelhorn here. And rounding out his group, uh, Marek Konarski on tenor sax, Christoph Dies, Dies, D-Y-S, on piano, uh, Mikhail Boronsky on bass, and David Fortuna on drums. Uh, all the music is uh, written and arranged, and the album was also produced by uh, Baldich, except the one tune uh, Hyper Ballad which is actually a Bjork song uh, ah, so I didn't know that oh that's yeah. right it is yeah, Hyper yeah. I, remember, I know that tune okay and um, I didn't realize it at the time <laughs> yeah I didn't I didn't know too and I looked back and I said okay um, so this album is very interesting in uh, his arrangements uh, because of the way he blends uh, instruments together also uh, his violin technique uh and the way he likes to uh, build off from that, he's uh, fond of uh, plucking 
the instrument uh, almost uh, not in a uh, kind of a as you would think of like a pizzicato violin line but rather more as a guitar uh, building sort of a rhythmic motif to build on and a lot of songs start out like that and then the way particularly you can tell from playing with this regular group uh, the way that he blends the tone of the violin with the saxophone on unison things to sort of get this sort of you know new expanded uh, uh, wide tone uh, and, and it's hard to actually pick out the individual instrument timbres and it like creates a new timbre and here with Fresu as a guest uh, he blends in there and then adds a, another tone into this uh, mix uh, and mixes it up with a Harman mute too uh, so tonally it's very interesting um, and his overall approach um, is uh, rather modal, I think. Uh, so a lot of the tunes, he chooses sort of harmonic ideas where he can explore uh, a lot of modes uh, in his soloing. Sometimes they uh, turn rather kind of more Middle Eastern than, uh, you know, uh, Western classical music, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and he seems to be involved in... Uh, as he came up as a classical player but then got interested in improvising and he has an ensemble uh, it appears that is uh, focused on having uh, classical musicians improvise uh, you can check out some of his uh, videos on YouTube uh, he seems to be getting some attention on that channel there uh, anyway on this recording we start out with a tune called heartbeats and this follows that sort of uh, structure that I described. It begins with a plucking sequence of chords on uh, violin, and then it's joined by piano, uh, and then the violin switches uh, once the piano takes over that sort of rhythmic sort of basis. The violin switches to kind of weeping phrases, uh, and you'll get a, a sense of his unique uh, tone on that. Uh, the bass adds a kind of irregular line into there, uh, and the drum uh, is mainly like with light brushes, so you can hear still the uh, melodic flow very easily. And then the sax joins with the violin, and you get that sort of new uh, timbre that's created out of both of those. And uh, Fresu makes his uh, entrance here. Uh, on this tune, he's doing something uh, sort of... Uh, counter to what's going on uh, with the violin and sax. Uh, he's got these counter improvisations that have a lot of fast valve uh, fluttering and sort of uh, skittles into the upper register. And then it's kind of over. It's kind of a short tune, uh, jazz-wise, less than four minutes. Uh, it sort of sets the tone for a lot of the arrangements that we'll hear. Uh, number two is I Remember. Again, a plucking intro joined by the piano. Uh, sax and muted trumpet this time join in. Uh, this one gets uh, kind of hypnotic and gets rather a uh, big beat, a uh, non-jazz beat, uh, more of a pop-type beat going under it. Uh, then uh, Baldich introduces <laughs> a main melody with some long legato notes. Yeah, I specifically said 70s pop for this one. Yeah, it's like a <laughs> pop kind of thing. reminded me of the 70s, thing. yeah. Uh, Baldish gets some very interesting timbres out of uh, the strings uh, in his solo here. And um, apparently reading uh, the notes of his background, he used to be a very much of a uh, 
technical based player uh, known for his uh, technique, but he's sort of tried to switch uh, to focusing more on a melodic style. Uh, and there's just some spots where he, you know, shows uh, some sort of uh, real uh, pyrotechnics. And, and here you'll get a hint at that with some uh, blazing runs there too. Uh, the tune is really quite pretty. And uh, Fraser adds some nice tonal touches with the Harmon mute. Uh, track three is called Stars. This starts with some chiming low piano chords. And uh, violin and bass play a unison yearning melody, which is interesting. Uh, the drums mm -hmm. kick in. It gets some more motion. Uh, Baranski takes a bass solo. And then uh, Dees has a kind of imaginative piano solo on this one. And uh, Baldrige's solo has a kind of magical uh, sort of a feeling to it, too. Uh, maybe it's all in the stars, uh, as they <laughs> say. Uh, track in four, the stars. Theodore. Uh, again, rhythmic plucking. Uh, yeah, he likes this a lot. This he is, does, it, I started yeah. to notice this. He does it on, on almost all of the tracks. Almost every tune, so yeah. He does it, yeah. And so this one, uh, obviously, he's using some overdubbing on this album because uh, he he gets this rhythmic plucking uh, sort of motif going, and then he comes in with a, a bowed high note melody over it. And uh, so he's doing... Uh, uh, multiple tracks with the parts. Uh, the piano and bass join in, and then uh, Baldich brings the melody down in the lower register, and he hits a really warm, thick tone. Uh, Fresu comes in, and he plays uh, uh, in unison. I had to listen to this twice. It's almost imperceptible uh, how he joins in on the Harmon mute. As I said, it's sort of like a joining of uh, tones to create a new timbre. Uh, Fortuna adds light cymbal work and some tom films, tom fills. Uh, I think this is, you know, the Renaissance violin. It has this unique tone and uh, it, it sounds really attractive. And he shows off here great phrasing in his solo rather than technique. Uh, the way he shapes his lines is uh, very musical. And then uh, after his solo, it's back to a more unison of the composed melody with the muted. Uh, trumpet, and it closes with uh, piano and some more subtle picked or plucked figures uh, that he likes so much. Uh, five poetry, the title track, uh, more plucked <laughs> rhythmic opening yeah. to start I, this I one. I figured out at this point. I said that he does this to outline the rhythm. It's almost like he's setting the rhythm mm -hmm. for the rest of the ensemble by doing that. And right. I, I think hearing it so many times, I say, ah, oh, that's what's happening. He's the first thing you hear always. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here, Fresu is uh, on flugelhorn uh, with a melodic phrase uh, and then uh, Baldich in the lower register. Uh, they trade phrases sometimes overlapping overlapping in a conversation. Uh, and then uh, Baldich adds another lower line uh, to the mix. Um, so his parts are obviously overdubbed, but the effect is nice. And uh, the, the harmonic shifts are very simple in this tune, but they get to be kind of uh, hypnotic. It's sort of like a a wave going back and forth between uh, the uh, uh, two harmonic ideas. Uh, six is a hyper ballad. Uh, this one doesn't start with plucking, uh, yeah. <laughs> rather a slow drum beat with a kick uh, joined by the bass. Uh, Baldich introduces the melody. Uh, it's joined by uh, chiming chords on the piano. Uh, the sax joins in unison to thicken the sound of the melody. And then the violin and sax trade off phrases. Uh, the focus is on uh, tonal beauty and phrasing. Mm 
Hmm. Uh, with track seven, we're back to the rhythmic plucking uh, in unison with a legato sax, and it's also joined by the piano. The drums and bass come in to fill out the rhythmic movement that's already been established uh, from his plucking. Like you say, he sets that rhythm up. Right. right. Uh, Balich begins his solo way up high, and then he comes down to the middle register. There's some really interesting chord changes here, and uh, Baldich explores them with these uh, different types of scales. And here's another tune where he shows his technique with some flurries of notes. And uh, I like the piano solo on this one, too. It's got a lot of intricate and precise rhythmic figures. Uh, In fact, the pianist on this album is consistently really uh, warm and sort of um, pulls you in. You know, mm. I, I, I liked his playing a lot. Yeah. Yeah, he seems to get that concept that he sets up with these rhythmic things, too. So he always makes sure he sets that sort of foundation before he uh, departs from it, even in his solos. Uh, track eight is uh, psalmody. Be psalm yeah. melody. Like a psalm, sure. yeah. yeah. It's actually a church term, I think. I don't psalmody, think it's a... Yeah. It might be a combination of two words, but... Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, it's a slow repeating I, piano I think it's the notes. adjective for psalm, really. Is it? Psalmody? Yeah, it could be. Yeah. I never no, thought... No, actually, it no, it's not an adjective. It's a noun. Oh, it's a noun. noun. Okay, yeah. Anyway, a slow repeating piano notes and a drum beat lay down a basis uh, for Baldich to weave a melody on top of... Uh, Karnowski joins in unison on the sax. Uh, their tones match so well. Creates this mm. unified, thick sound. Uh, the bass joins subtly into the mix, too, uh, and uh, Kornarski gets a solo here. He explores the harmonies uh, going from the lower register up to high, and he plays a lot of fast rhythmic figures uh, with a legato style. And then Baldich solos, uh, gets some uh, fast bowing and also a real tonal edge of intensity on this mm. tune, uh, a little variation in timbre. Track nine is called Birds. And this is another uh, plucking figure. It's very hypnotic here uh, to start out. It's joined by bass and light drum work. And the piano joins in. And then Baldick explores some of the interesting modes that are suggested by the harmony. Uh, and he plays a uh, plucked solo that is more guitar or thurobo-like uh, uh, than it is uh, anything on the violin. Uh, the harmony and beat change up uh, for a bit. Uh, in a section before the ending. Uh, so this was a kind of interesting uh, composition, I thought. Uh, track 10 is called Grace. Uh, piano and violin introduce a rubato hymn-like melody. It's just a short piece that focuses on showing off uh, the lovely tones. And uh, final piece here is Open Sky. This one starts with repeating low rhythmic piano tones and bass with a drum beat that set a foundation for a searching melody uh, that's bowed by Baldich and then played in unison by Fresu with a uh, Harmon muted trumpet and also in the piano right hand. So you have these multiple layers of sound playing in the melody. There's a transition section. It's got a lot of harmonic movement in descending lines. And uh, Baldich starts a solo in the low register. And here he explores some really kind of non-Western modes. And the effect gets to be kind of like a Middle Eastern uh, type of uh, sound in, in, in his uh, choices. Uh, it's a nice groove. 
that's laid down by Baranski and Fortuna. And then Fresu comes in for a Harmon muted solo. Uh, he departs from the modal approach, which is more chromatic uh, in his uh, lines here. Um, so I really enjoyed this uh, album. I, I like his approach and concept. He's got uh, you know some real cohesion in the ideas that he's putting together. The tonal blends with the sax and trumpet are very nice. Uh, I like his uh, explorations uh, in harmony using a lot of modal ideas uh, that give sort of a multicultural kind of uh, uh, aspect to his uh, improvisations. His playing is mostly centered around beautiful tone and phrasing, and he only occasionally, you know, shows off bursts of technique and uh, some edginess to his sound when it suits the moment. Um, so yeah, check out his uh, YouTube channel uh, too. Uh, he's bringing together classical musicians and uh, exploring different uh, improvisations. And he has an interesting haircut too. So. I didn't <laughs> but, check uh, that out. Yeah. But uh, yeah, interesting album. Uh, yeah, interesting is a good word for it. Oh, but before we uh, go on, I want to say psalmody is simply the singing of psalms. Psalms, okay. of course, are, are the words that you see so in the Bible. it is a real word then. And so, uh, yeah, I've, I've read it before. I know it because I've read so many familiar, books yeah. on classical music, right? Right. But uh, yeah, the singing of psalms is psalmody. So if you're going to go to church and sing psalms, you're going to be engaging in psalmody. It comes from the Greek psalmoida or something like that. Singing to a harp right. is what it means. Anyway, um, yeah, this album, um, it, it's, it's a kind of low-key record. I thought the tone was really beautiful and I especially enjoyed whenever the piano the pianist came in he had this really gorgeous warm sense of chords and things like that and uh, I think this is a record that will reward repeated listenings like because of the uh, the interplay between first of all the violin and the sax which I thought were fantastic is that Paolo Fresu the sax? Uh, no Uh, sax is who's uh, the sax? saxophone is Marek Konarski yeah, I, I liked the way they kind of traded off. Right. I, I felt like the violin really um, uh, worked well with what the sax gave him. You know, he right. would kind of go off and do something else. And again, the combining of tones into a new, that's sort of timbre. That's not really a classical thing to do. It has to be kind of planned in advance. You know, I don't think you right. just, you just do yeah. that. So I liked this. Um um, it it didn't excite me, but it certainly interested me. Um, so I was kind of I was glad to hear it, and I just love hearing modes all the time too. So yeah, it's more and, how can yeah. I say it's more hypnotic than it is yeah. energizing. Uh, it's right. sort of yeah. something that puts you in a zone rather than mm -hmm. you know sort of excites you. Uh, so if you're in the mood for something, you know, moody, uh, that as I said, uh, moody, not in change of moods, but something that sort of sets an atmosphere. Mood setting. Yeah, yeah mood okay, setting yeah. and sort of puts you in a zone. Yeah, this would be a good one to put on after work, uh, you know, pour your glass of wine and yeah. uh, it will, it will I, put you I in I wouldn't a put this on with at the candlelight dinner, though. It's not really for that. It's a little, no, 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 no. It's sort of contemplative. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but... Yeah, I like this concept. I thought it's uh, something unique. And uh, it's not just a violin playing jazz. He has a clear approach to what kind of material he wants to uh, put across. He's carving out his own, uh, yeah. his own spot in there. Right. All right. So another instrument uh, we don't hear so much, although we heard it last week, but not like this. And we heard yes. it a while ago, not quite like this. Uh 
well, pick up those mallets for Puerta yeah. on the ECM label by Jorge Rossi. Now, this is uh, Spanish musician's leader debut for ECM on vibraphone, uh, mm. which we often hear, and it's wooden lighter cousin, the marimba, uh, which we don't hear uh, much of in jazz because of vibraphone. Yeah, because it has to be recorded a little closer too. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that uh, Rossi is mainly been known as a drummer uh, in the past with Brad Meldau Trio. Uh, and huh. so, uh, you know, he is making a big switch uh, here. Uh, and he says here, well, so Puerta means door. And so that has uh, a, a significance here. He says, with this trio, the objective was to leave a lot of space for the instruments to breathe and unfold by playing fewer essential notes. And, and he certainly you, did that. <laughs> you will get a real sense of uh, space and looseness uh, here. Rather than tightly grooving jazz, this is uh, music that has a, a lot of... Uh, you know, gap and leeway. Uh, yep. Not to say that it's, it's. Uh, I don't want to give the wrong impression, that it's the players aren't melded and completely together. It's just, uh, it moves on a sort of a more flexible kind of uh, sort of rhythmic paradigm, I guess you could say. Hmm. Uh, then he goes on to say, uh, I tend to be a minimalist on vibraphone and marimba to play a few notes and make more use of the space that separates the individual sounds from each other. I was a trumpet player for 10 years when I was still quite young. Uh, the lessons in melody I learned from that time also translate very well to the vibraphone or to the marimba. Uh, so apparently the puerta, the door, um, was uh, sort of uh, a crossroads in his life uh, when he was playing with Brad Meldau and he was thinking about leaving the band, but he hadn't decided yet. Uh, and he finally saw that it was time to move on. And so he's sort of gone to a new chapter uh, here. Um, and vibraphone and marimba. And so here he's got uh, all uh, original compositions, uh, except for the tune uh, Cargles, which is written by uh, Chris Cheek. So we start out with a very interesting uh, titled tune, uh, <laughs> Post-Catholic Waltz. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is a slow four-beat time uh, tune. It's kept very loosely on cymbals as Rossi plays delicate minor descending chord textures on the vibes in the intro uh, for over a minute. It's a very long intro. There's a kind of a pause. And then he starts out with finally the uh, waltz beat uh, that's joined by the bass and drums. Uh, oh, I should mention his compatriots here. Uh, we've got uh, Robert Lanferman on bass and Jeff Ballard on drums. Uh, so after uh, the waltz beats established, uh, Ballard mixes up some subdivided beats and Lanferman keeps the pulse and Rossi hits very delicate chords. <laughs> His playing is very <laughs> delicate everywhere. Uh, Lanferman takes a yeah. solo, plays softly but with lots of movement and Rossi takes the next solo. He turns up the volume a bit, varies up the rhythm of the phrases which Ballard picks up on. He's a very sensitive and listening drummer. He adds accents over the loose feel. Uh, after a solo, it slows and it goes back to the 4-4 restatement of the intro. 
I should mention now, I guess, um, that when I heard this record, I heard it like, and I, I just kind of thought, ah, this is okay. But I just, it just kind of stayed in my head all day. And at night, when I was like laying in bed, it, I was just sort of thinking about this, the, the, this, the, the, the quietness of his playing, the just gently tapping on the, uh, the bar with the mallet, you know, and just, uh, having the, uh, the sound just rise out of the of the instrument. It it, it was it was so subtle and so you know like gentle. Yeah. Like it put me in mind. I was trying to think of what it was, and then I was laying in bed, and this, the uh, the image arose of those old um, those uh, like baby diaper commercials from the nineteen seventies and eighties, <laughs> where where you had huggies. that yeah huggies or something like that. Where you had that. The guy, why it's a guy, I don't know, but he's got that bass voice that he's he's trying to simulate the softness of the huggies or the the diaper with his with his voice. He's saying like you know, you know, they you know, huggies diapers are gentle on baby skin, you know that kind of thing. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I tap I tap the mallet, I tap the bar with my mallet, and the <laughs> the yeah. sound emerges like a puff of baby powder. You know that kind of thing. Yeah, it's almost like he's afraid yeah. to hurt hurt the uh, yeah. Hurt the instruments. Um, You're not going to hurt a, your baby's ears with this album. <laughs> no, it must be a personality thing. It's it's so restrained. Um, I, I don't mean that to be an insult, by the way. It's just, it's no, just no, the it, image that came up for me. It was, yeah. a, good, it was a good album. I mean, but you um, know, yeah, it's it's interesting. And then, I mean, that's his approach to vibraphone. So when he switches yeah. over to marimba, <laughs> you've got to <laughs> even turn up the volume more, uh, yeah. as he does on the second. You, you got to put your head in the woofer to you put your head under those. <laughs> <laughs> sound tubes there uh yeah. track two is tainos uh on marimba here it starts with a loose shaker kind of beat uh rossi switches to marimba and you got some real soft playing here the bass joins in bollard switches uh, to the kit uh drum kit from the shaker still lightly with brushes gives some more motion as rossi's ideas uh turns a little bit more melodic uh, it's as if it's as if he's playing as softly as possible. Lanferman <laughs> um, solos on bass for a bit, and then Rossi is back with some more melodic uh, ideas before it fades out even more softly. They talk uh, about splitting the atom, as, you know, yeah. as far as like, I think I feel like he he's trying to put the atom back together again. Yeah, <laughs> with, this, with how quiet he's playing. Yeah, so quiet. Uh, three, Adagio, uh, bass and vibes mix tones for a bit, and then Ballard adds cymbals. Uh, Lenferman carries the motion on this tune, and then Rossi chimes out uh, on the vibes with some more attack, finally. Uh, Ballard's drumming here is uh, really all about texture rather than a beat. Um, this tune is more about tones in a free space than getting any motion, and that's kind of the overall effect on a lot of the things here the the there's so much space uh in the beat that's agreed upon and so there's this hanging kind of looseness it's kind of attractive in a way but it's very the opposite of you know a hard driving kind of swing uh the the music hangs in space uh and that's the way he i i think you know he can lay down his ideas uh without having to be you know in this sort of rhythmic lock uh, and that's what works for him uh four is called uh maybe tuesday and this is supposed to be based on uh the man i love uh gershwin tune you'll get a couple hints at it uh but you might not know if you didn't hear me say that um 
the drum intro here starts it out. We get some some more swinging uh, with uh, Lanferman walking and taking a bit of a solo before Rossi picks out uh, melodic ideas uh, little by little. And uh, let me see. Then um, there's still a lot of space here. About midway through, uh, he works up some more intensity with swinging lines for a climax. Uh, Lanferman and Ballard trade off phrases for an extended time uh, before Rossi joins back in. And then Ballard keeps busy underneath with uh, extra moving lines uh, and jams out over Rossi's chords to the end. Uh, five is Cargols. Uh, here we get a vibe chord sequence that starts out uh, before the bass and drums kick in with a slow waltz tempo for the minor melody. Uh, this one keeps a bit more of strict time feel and Rossi plays some attractive melodies in his solo. Uh, Lanferman has a melodic solo too as well and there's a real dreamy chord ending to this one. Uh, then we've got six, uh, Sila e Caribdi, uh, Sila e Caribdi, Caribdi which I guess is Sila and Charybdis from... Charybdis, uh, the uh, Greek monsters, right? Yeah, from In the uh, uh, Straits of Messina uh, between right. Sicily and the Italian mainland. Yeah. Um, so we've got a little uh, mythical imagery here. Uh, bass starts it out, and then Rossi and Bauer join in. Uh, the beat is uh, kept precisely on the cymbals. Uh, Rossi starts out on vibes, but he switches to marimba in this to get... Uh, different tones so that's kind of interesting he does that a couple times on the recording changing instruments within one tune uh, Lanferman gets some space to solo here and Rossi is back to vibes again for the melody at the end seven is the title track Puerta uh, this is that uh, Ballard gives a light intro with sticks there's some whale this is very interesting some whale like <laughs> crying effects I wondered what is going on and then I realized that um, it's Lanferman on bass and uh, he's adding like these overtones of bass strings uh, into it. Uh, well, Rossi works on an alternating pattern on marimba. Uh, and then he works some of these kind of whale cries into more bass tones and you realize that's what it is. But it's a very kind of uh, arresting <laughs> uh, sound effect. Uh, Rossi comes back in on the vibes with some more presence then until the ending. Uh, so look out for the whale cries on this one. Uh, eight is S-T, mm -hmm. letters S and T, on marimba here. Uh, it's an interesting slow four-beat rhythm for the melody. Uh, he gets a bit of a groove going on the syncopated melody and switches to vibes for the solo, uh, the opposite he did on the other track. Uh, Rossi still plays uh, with a lot of space, but he shows some more variety in dynamics and accents. And uh, Lanferman has a rhythmic uh, bass, more of a jammy solo on this one. Uh, I, this, the, yeah, this one kind of reminded me, it has this kind of lumpiness to the rhythm. It kind of reminded me of Tom Waits. I kind of remember right. that. I like yeah, that, that kind of, kind yeah. of like yeah. a drunken plot of a beat in a Tom Waits <laughs> song, yeah. Right. Um, nine Ventana it's a faster tempo swinging tune uh, Rossi swings along and he keeps things very melodic and uh, closes out appropriately with Adios uh, the last track number 10 it's more of a rumba like dance beat tune uh, here uh, with Rossi on marimba and uh, Ballard keeps the drums uh, mainly on toms with a little bit of hi-hat 
uh, here to say goodbye. So a unique, uh, very sometimes frustratingly subtle uh, yeah, approach. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I thought. That's a good um, word. If you want to mm. listen to this with its uh, bizarro brother, uh, it's really the antithesis of the style of uh, <laughs> Simone Moulier, yes. who we heard back in episode 29. <laughs> uh, if you want to hear like, coked up vibes versus quaalude vibes uh put these up back to back and you'll get like a completely different approach to the instruments you know i kind of feel like if like uh if uh simon moulier ever found uh george rossi's uh vibraphone and played it that the vibraphone would leave rossi for moulier <laughs> guess it and enjoy I'm being sure, yeah. more <laughs> this is a sort of a masochistic marimba yeah he's kind of he's like he's afraid to touch the instrument you know it's yeah. kind of, it's, but no yeah. I, I yeah i found that you, the way you described it is really the way exactly the way i felt it was kind of i i found the the quietness it, it the quietness of the sound almost sounded self-conscious to me and it was frustrating to me i mean i'm fine with quiet mellow sounds but right this almost felt like there was like a, a self-consciousness to it that kind of put me off. I don't know. Yeah. I like the album enough. I mean, I said, you know, it's a, like I said, it's a good record. And if it appeals, I mean, you expect this sort of thing from ECM records anyway. They're always going to do something a little unusual. Yeah. Or they'll get an artist that'll do unusual things. But I was kind of like, oh, I don't know. I, I, I think I'd rather hear Moulier. I remember saying that I was exhausted ever after hearing that record. <laughs> yeah. After this yeah. one, I was frustrated, you know. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, he gets like you know three or four espressos before he plays and then he you know mm. he goes in there and takes out his uh, aggressions uh on, I, I uh, think i think he he comes onto the stage and he sees the vibraphone and like kind of don quixote he, he thinks it's a dragon and mm-hmm. then yeah, that's menacing yeah. the audience and he has to heroically subdue it but <laughs> that's kind of what Moulier's playing sounds like to me still this approach again is not some... an insult i enjoyed it a lot yeah <laughs> but... it it's interesting to me, um, you know, a lot of times people associate, you know, jazz with swing and yeah. a real hard driving swing. And then, uh, you know, ever since, uh, you know, especially, uh, you know, with, with swing and bebop and even more modern styles, uh, the precision uh, that's required, you know, to, you know, play fast lines over, uh, you know, uh, very fast rhythmic patterns and then to take the opposite approach where the players agree upon uh, this sort of kind of looseness in time and you need to have a special drummer for that who sort of plays around the beats and you know does an accent in the places where you think it's going to happen and uh, then here Rossi's approach is to sort of play within those sort of uh, spaces and then he takes lots of spaces in general that's his sort of approach so it's a different concept of uh, you know working with the time and uh, rhythm of jazz and in that way it's interesting sometimes it's a little frustrating as a you know if you're used to listening to hard driving kind of swing things but I, I enjoyed it and uh, you know something different uh, a player who won't sound like uh, yeah, it was unique, yeah, certainly. That's right. And finally, for this week's fun house uh, <laughs> yeah. instruments. The, the, the funnest house of all. The funnest house of all. Um, particularly a nice title. Out of focus, when you're looking in that fun house mirror, uh, 
Well, we do hear trombone from time to time, but never enough uh, trombone in earlier styles of jazz. Uh, it was more uh, common. When you Once you got to bebop, uh, it's hard to play bebop on trombone because you've right. got to work that slide in and out. Of course, there were some uh, valve trombonists, uh, but here we've got a real uh, virtuoso. Uh, 2020 downbeat rising star of the trombone, Nick mm -hmm. Finzer, on... Uh, the Outside in Music label. Uh, Nick Finzer is a graduate of Eastman University and uh, for his undergraduate and a master's at Juilliard. So he uh, doesn't know what he's doing. And uh, <laughs> he's got some incredible trombone chops. And uh, this is, to me, was a really fun album, uh, if you like trombone. Uh, and here is another sort of Corona concept album album. Uh, left with a lot uh -huh. of time on his hands. Uh, he wanted to see what he could do. Uh, Whenever you say that, I always think, oh, what did he drink a lot of Corona beer and get inspired? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I did. But um, <laughs> here uh, he's worked on, I, I don't have, uh, this, this album just came out, I think uh, mm. the 15th. So it's new and I've tried to get everything I could uh, for uh, recording notes, but it just calls it a virtual collaboration. So I'm guessing uh -huh. that much like the, uh, Chad Lefkowitz uh, big band album we heard uh, a couple weeks ago that uh, maybe a lot of this was done uh, online through different uh, collaborations um, you're going to hear a lot of uh, trombone here a few uh, guests uh, and on a couple tracks he's just got with the quintet with uh, a piano player uh, who I had a nice conversation once with uh, oh really I like his playing Osaka. a lot actually yeah, he's, he's the, a really the pianists good... all come up trumps on this uh yeah, on, good on all three of these albums, they're really good. They're really nice, warm, nice, warm sounds. I'm speaking of Xavier Davis, uh, who I got to know when he was playing with uh, Tom Harrell, but I got to meet him when he came to Osaka with Freddie Hubbard. I remember um, that. I didn't yeah. go to that, but I mean, I remember yeah, you talking and, about that. Um, it was with the New Composers Octet, who was playing behind him, which had a lot of great players. Steve Davis on trombone, one of the uh, top guys today was in the group that night. But what was really cool, it was like a Tuesday night. And uh, it, embarrassingly for the the Blue Note is now going in uh, Osaka. Uh, but uh, there were not that many people there. And uh, well, uh, I was there with our friend Nathan and my wife and the manager said, uh, would you like to stay for the second show? And that, you know, that, that's not going to happen very often. I said, oh, sure. And so they, all the other customers were, uh, you know, given the bums a rush. And we got to stay. And the, <laughs> the whole band went up to the bar. So I got to meet Freddie Hubbard and uh, talk to everyone else. But I had a conversation with uh, Xavier Davis. And he's a really uh, nice guy, too. Um, so I haven't heard uh, him on any recordings recently. So his name... Uh, got my interest here uh also jay anderson on bass uh quincy davis on drums we've got a few other uh guests joining in here uh finzer is uh particularly influenced by a lot of older styles of jazz too uh, and here he pays some uh, uh tributes to duke ellington but uh, some other interesting choices, uh, starting with number one, uh, Sing a Song of Song by Kenny Garrett, uh, who we heard uh, his latest album a couple weeks ago. And here he's got uh, guest uh, Reginald Chapman. And it just 
says he's a guest, I think, because he's a multi-instrumentalist, I think he may be on bass trombone on this track. Uh, this is a really cool track to start out. Uh, there's only trombones and drums. Uh, and uh, yeah. the harmonization of the haunting melody is very cool and uh, some nice uh, trombone solos here too. And it's uh, kind of a haunting uh, theme uh from Garrett's you know, composition here. Uh, so this one sets the mood that you're going to get a lot of <laughs> tromboning uh, in here. Yeah. And if you listen to this in headphones, there's some like uh, Pink Floyd, like left to right stereo mm-hmm. effects too. That was really yeah. fun. On yep. this. Uh, two, The Star-Crossed Lovers. This is from Duke Ellington's uh, Such Sweet Thunder Sweet. Uh, hmm. S-U-I-T-E, arranged for five trombones. Uh, This starts with some excellent plunger play. uh, And then before it gets into the melody, there's this rising stacked trombone tone (laughs) sort of uh, uh, layers that come in uh, that's really cool. Uh, There's no rhythm section here, nothing, just harmonized trombones uh, behind the plunger solo melody. Uh, It's a great uh, lush arrangement and uh, actually, there's two mutes involved here. Uh, it's something uh, Finzer has worked on, and he gets real vocal-like qualities of sound effects. Right. Uh, it's using a pixie mute, which is like a very narrow, straight mute, and then a plunger over the top of that. Uh, so you get growls and all kinds of tonal variations there. It sounded uh, a lot like Charlie Brown's teacher for all yes, oh, the yeah. adults in those uh, you know, peanuts. Uh, special. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yes, um, ma'am. <laughs> uh, this track, piece, yeah. I, I know. I, I know you like the plunger effect, and I was really impressed by this guy's technique with this. He had a mm-hmm. real speaking quality to it. But th- this track was like six minutes long, and I could. I it was just too much of that that effect for me i know brass players like you were gonna love it but that was kind of yeah. like it, it kind of it was like a funny it started out as like a funny joke and i felt like it was like be uh, one of those jokes that gets repeated and then soon it's not funny anymore i was kind of like i don't know i thought it was a bit long uh, anyway my anyway. my non-brass playing <laughs> you know mine thought that so there you go uh track three <laughs> is stardust the uh hoagie carmichael tune and this one we've got the uh quartet format here and uh, yeah, just kind of played straight, uh, and you get uh, overall more picture of uh, uh, Finzer in a standard, you know, jazz kind of uh, format here. And uh, yeah, he, nice piano solo in this one too. By very the way. nice piano solo by uh, mm-hmm. Xavier Davis here, and uh, you know, just uh, standard jazz done really well. Yeah, Finzer sounds to me like he's very, um, he's got a really great sense of humor. Yeah, and it even comes across in this piece too. He mm-hmm. uh, he's he's funny. He's clever. Yeah, it's and not schmaltzy can... at all. Um, yeah, yeah, it's um, that's a good New York New York term for it. Right? Schmaltzy. schmaltzy, yeah, schmaltzy, the schmaltz. Yeah. <laughs> really, I think from Vienna. I think it's like yeah, a, yeah. a Yiddish word. Yeah, okay. um, and it, trombone can can be you know very uh, yearning, um, yeah. you know, on a ballad um, or something. But he doesn't get uh, too. Uh, emotional here he has a sense of humor uh like you say in his lines uh track four is a song that's kind of become a uh jazz standard laura from the 1945 movie uh uh, i think the composer is raskin um here um this is just solo trombone 
And uh, wow, right away, your <laughs> trombone comes in way up high. It gets way down uh, low in the intro. Uh, and then Finzer outlines the melody. At the same time, he sort of uh, hints at harmony uh, with occasional low bass tone intervals. Uh, so, you know, he'll... Yeah, that kind of reminded me of something you'd hear in a classical piece, like something by Bach. You know, you'd hear right. like the pedal point sort of, or like right. that tone, you know, and... Well, you know, I think as brass players, uh, we, you get a lot of these type of exercises and etudes uh, right. in books that like, you know, and so you're forced to practice these things. And so they, they're sort of burned into your consciousness. So, um, maybe, you know, after all those interval exercises, you find some way to use them more musically. Uh, and so yeah. he incorporates those ideas. Uh, then, at one, he, at one point, uh, yeah, go ahead. You want to talk about it? Go ahead. Well, yeah, while he's d d in doing that in Malacca, then he unleashes this flurry of arpeggios. Here right, that's, what I, that's yeah. exactly what I was going to say. It sounded like a Baroque keyboard work yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so he's like really uh, showing all the uh, technique that he's amassed uh, while he's going through this piece. Uh, and then after that, uh, he okay. gets more back to the melody and he kind of carries the tune uh, swinging uh lightly to the end all on his own as he started as it, it as it gets to the end though like he's playing that low bass note and he's kind of he he's getting more of like a like a like an oinking like a pig oinking <laughs> right, sound yeah. out of it. Yeah. and i i couldn't help but think like does he, he doesn't like this woman laura very much right? I think, <laughs> yeah. you know I felt, I felt like she was kind of like this unappealing like classic girl who was learning classical piano or something that's kind of the image i got of her could be i've never seen the movie here. uh so yeah. I, I can't really say yeah yeah um five a tune that everyone probably knows mood indigo uh and uh but you've never heard it like this the duke ellington yeah. tune with a 15 trombone arrangement uh, <laughs> <laughs> or 15 parts i should say i don't know how many of them he's playing but i do know here he's got another guest uh Jennifer Wharton on the bass trombone. Uh, as you would imagine, it's a huge wall of trombone sounds. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's the Phil Spector of trombones, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are lots of harmonized moving parts. Uh, what I like is uh, you get this huge thickness, but then under the trombone solo, there's um, parts that are just like chord hits on the beat. Womp, mm -hmm. womp, you know, like, and so that sort of breaks up the huge thick legato sections uh, so that's kind of an interesting contrast then after the solo all the bones get stacked on the melody uh kind of uh you know in a more cohesive thing before they kind of split on the arrangement a little bit more to the end uh so yeah this is like more trombones than have ever been on <laughs> any jazz piece i'm sure uh, yeah it's a really interesting effect uh six uh is a track uh by the trombone great J.J. Uh, Johnson uh, called Judy. Uh, he's paying tribute to one of his um, sort of uh, inspirational figures. So this is another solo trombone number. Uh, Finzer again carries on a melody line while sometimes dipping low to outline the harmonic movement uh, with lower intervals. Uh, there's not much room to rest or breathe uh, in a piece like yeah. this when you're trying to do everything. Uh, so it's also a kind of endurance test. But I, he swings on uh, melodically uh, to the end, uh, carrying it all uh, as a soloist here. Yeah. 
think um, you have uh, Judy as a um, you know, like character too. I think it, you know she sounds confident and sassy in this piece. Yeah. So I think uh, I think between Judy and Laura, we can be absolutely sure of who he's going to invite to the prom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he Laura. likes Judy a lot more. Yeah. Uh, then we had a really interesting choice. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, I, this is my favorite track on the album, actually. I yeah, this is this really one. uplifting. Uh, Bright Size Life, the Pat Metheny tune, uh, which uh, we heard just a few weeks ago on his uh, live right. album. Uh, so here we're back to the quartet format. Is it really, you know, the up this tune? It's got an uplifting melody, and it actually sounds really cool on trombone. Um, yeah. You know, it's not what you would expect to hear it on. But, um, yeah, Finn just shows off some technique on this one. Uh, a lot of rapid lines, uh, tonguing effects, too. Uh, Davis is another great piano solo here. He mixes these bright, uplifting lines that match sort of the uh, scales implied by the melody. But in between, he gets some kind of funkiness on the chords uh, in between on his solo. Uh so, yeah, I wouldn't expect to hear a Pabbath 80 tune on trombone, but this works out really well, and uh, it's a nice version. And then um, eight, a uh, single petal of a rose, and this is mm-hmm. another Duke Ellington uh, piece from the Queen's Suite. And so he saved this one to the end because he's going to show off his chops. And uh, right. don't try this at home, trombone players. <laughs> but uh, So another solo uh, tune. Now here... You're going to get some real alternation with low tones uh, and then, I mean, really low, uh, with the yearning melodic phrases uh, to start out. Uh, And then Finzer gives us a demonstration of harmonics uh, on the trombone. So he's going to play these notes that get a buzz in the amateur where you're actually going to hear overtones of other notes. Uh, So this combination is uh, very cool. Uh, Then he climbs up really high. for some notes uh, near the end of his solo. Also get some growling tones uh, ended in there. And then uh, he ends up uh, with a series of these uh, lower tones that include all the harmonics in them. So you'll actually hear uh, more than one note at the same time. Uh, These kind of things, if you play brass instruments, they they happen uh, sometimes (laughs) when you're playing. Uh, They're very hard to control and use musically. Uh, so uh, achieving this in uh, a solo piece like this is kind of an awesome technical thing. So Finzer has uh, really awesome chops, but he also keeps things musical uh, all the time. He's not a show-off. Uh, and when he does do these things, it's always kind of like with a wink and a sense of yeah. humor, uh, too. Uh, He's definitely got a sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, great tone. Nice uh, concept. Uh Nice to see some, you know, like just trombone as a leader, but then also, you know, as a solo showcase and then just saying, let's just bone this out with as much bone ideas as we can. Uh, Paying tribute to, uh, you know, his uh, sort of, you know, musical mentors, uh, people who influenced. He had a real thing for Ellington's music and, of course, uh, J.J. Johnson, master of trombone, but then throwing us a curve with uh, kind of... um, this Pat Metheny tune uh, here and uh, the uh, Kenny Garrett tune is a nice addition. So you got a mixture of styles uh, and then all 
you know, deep trombone. So uh, this is a must for trombone players or brass players. <laughs> Absolutely. And right. Anyone who just wants to hear something a little bit different and cool, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I just really, I th- if you throw this on, everyone's going to turn and look because, uh, you know, you don't get to hear this much trombone in any one it's recording. A, it's an odd sounding album, I think. Yeah. It'll definitely turn heads if you put it on yeah. at the party or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So there you have it, uh, a mixture of jazz with instruments that we don't get to hear uh, that much of, but uh, here they all are in one fun house of uh, jazz here. So um, yeah, um, I think you'll have something a little bit different than the regular jazz quartet or piano trio to uh, munch on for this week uh, if you go through all this listening. Yeah, this will definitely like uh, stretch your brain out like a piece of chewing gum. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was pretty uh, stretched this week after getting the wrath of God and uh, some of those other pieces uh, in here, and then uh, getting boned by uh, the trombones. Yeah, he, he's and a, uh, he's, cer- he's certainly keeping keeping the bone and trombone on this yeah. album. Yeah, and we had uh, you know some marimba and violin. Uh, yeah. yeah, a lot of variety all, this week. all a little unusually played. Yeah. Except for that opening Baroque album, which the is pretty straightforward. Baroque? Yeah, which Despite, is great. Yeah. It's great, too, because it's going to be very familiar, but you you know, I don't think most people know this composer and this tunes. so yeah. uh, you're still finding music you haven't heard yet from the, you know, previous centuries. Uh, we can go on like this forever. And, and we uh, will. Never, never run out of things to listen to. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So there you have it, folks. This has been episode 38 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Uh, do check out the playlist and uh, hear all of these tunes on Deezer in one place. And uh, take a moment, give us a review, uh, give us a ranking on whatever service you're listening to us on. Uh, we'd appreciate it. Help us grow our audience. If you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, you can reach us at Adult Music Podcast, all one word at gmail.com any hints for next week Mike uh, uh, I'm going to keep it uh, keep it under wraps I think keep it under wraps okay yeah let me see this is, I think there might be another contemporary composer coming though and another there's certainly another Baroque work but this one's going to be a little off the beaten path that's right well I can say um, yeah probably got another couple weeks of surprise things and then we're going to get to uh, we're going to have to do our our real face-to-face episode here in a couple weeks for well, Christmas yeah, the, episode. The, the audience, the audience doesn't know this. We we do this on uh, Zoom, so we're not in the yeah. same room at the moment. But we are, we sometimes do get together and do it in the same yeah. room. Well, we so. see each other face-to-face uh, yeah. at least once a week during the but, week. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're gonna do. Uh, we've done a couple episodes face-to-face, so we're gonna have a little Christmas celebration, and we've got to. Uh, we've got talk a Christmas about episode coming Christmas up. Episode second week in December. Then we'll have a best of the year uh, Bizarro episode, which we'll talk more about uh, which, which I think we'll that, probably uh, do uh, after Christmas. We, you Normally yeah. we do those before Christmas, but I don't know. I feel like I really want to do it at the end of the year. Yeah, yeah. Just in you case know? something else pops up. So You have something to listen to on New Year's if you're home alone like me. <laughs> well, what is there to do here man just, you know well, you gotta go to some hey, temple and ring the bell I don't, don't want to do that hey, come over here and we'll have some food and drinks and uh, that's possible I do, do that, I have yeah. recently moved house and I've got a nice uh, shrine near me so I'm curious to see what's gonna go on there get one of those you know? big sake tarus and uh, crack into that they've got they've got one of those in the yeah. uh, up in the uh, yeah the main stage area of the shrine so yeah, something to do anyway 
I, 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 I like the for... way I, I like the way that the that the uh, the the Japanese kind of shrine religion is involves alcohol. I think that's, that's right. Really awesome. Right from the morning on New Year's Day, um, <laughs> crack that open and start the year right. That sounds good. Yeah, to me. the Japanese nature spirits apparently like booze. Yeah, as we do, as we do. Yeah. Well, that's enough booze and enough music for one week. Uh, episode 38. We'll be back again next week with episode 39 and six new recordings. So until then, keep listening and we'll see you for the next episode. Mm-hmm.